The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter One. Enter the SSC. A musical gong resounding through the corridors of the Sunnyside Seminary was the signal for the opening of doors and the trooping out of girls of all ages in twos and threes and groups, some with ribbon braids, a few with long curls, but most of them with saucy bobs. It was a ten-minute recreation between changing classes. Had it been summer, one and all would have flocked out on the wide green lawns to play a game of toss-ball for a few merry moments, or to rest on benches under the great old elms or to saunter up and down the flower-bordered paths. But, since it was a wild, blustery day in January, the pupils of Mr. Morris's school for select young ladies contented themselves, some of them with opening the heavy front door and uttering little screams of pretended fear, or of sincere delight when a snow-laden gust brushed past them, leaving those nearest with wind-tossed hair. Six of them, having no curiosity, it would seem, concerning the weather, gathered about the wide fireplace in the library for a few moments of hurried gossip. "'Where's Mary?' Peggy Pierce asked as she glanced towards the open door that led into the music room. She said we were to come here and wait for her. She's made a wild and wonderful discovery. She told me in class. If Miss Preens didn't have eyes in the back of her head, Mary would have told me what was going on.' But, just as she was starting, around whirled that living skeleton and pointed an accusing bony finger at us, as she moaned in that deep, uncanny voice of hers, Miss Marion Lee, one demerit for whispering, Miss Peggy Pierce, one demerit for listening. Say, can you beat that? I don't think she's human, Rosamond Wright declared, her iris-blue eyes round and serious. Honest, true, I think she has demonical powers. "'That's too much for me,' laughed little Betty Bird. "'Where do you learn such long words, Rose? "'I'm still using monosyllables.' "'Sounds like it,' Bertha Angel commented. "'To return to the subject under discussion, "'where do you suppose that the President of the SSC is?' "'Peggy Pierce glanced at her wristwatch, "'but, as usual, it had stopped running. "'Time, Peg? "'According to my old reliable, "'there's just five minutes more of recess, and—' "'Doris Dreel broke off to exclaim gleefully— here she comes, here's Mary. Then, to the girl who, laughing and tussled, appeared in the doorway leading from the corridor, Rosamond cried, What's the big idea, Mary? Didn't you call a fireplace meeting for the very minute after the gong rang? And now it's time for the next gong, and we haven't heard what it is you have to tell us. But Mary, although she tried to look repentant, was laughing so hard that still another moment was wasted while she made an effort to compose herself. Down on a comfortably upholstered chair she sank, thrusting her feet out towards the blaze. She had laughed herself limp. "'What, pray tell, is the joke? I suppose you are aware of the fact that it is January the 10th and not April the 1st. Peggy could be quite sarcastic at times. Oh, I say, Peg, have a heart. I did mean to be here, but just as I was leaving class, the living skeleton laid a bony hand on my shoulder and told me to remain in my seat.' through the recess, and think of my sins, and of course I had to, but all I could think of was the peach of a news item which I have to impart, and so, the very moment she left the room, I broke through that mob out in the corridor, and here I am. Then, twinkling-eyed, she looked up at the others who were standing about her. In a thousand years not one of you could guess what I found out. "'Heavens, Mary, don't start that old gag of yours at trying to keep us in suspense. Out with it, or the gong will—' Peg's conclusion was not heard, for the gong, evidently hearing its cue, pealed out six malevolent strokes. Tragic fate! 
The culprit was too mischievous-looking to seem sincerely repentant. Terribly sorry, girls, but I hate to spoil the thrill you'll get when you hear my news by rattling it off in such a short time. Well, then, after school, what say? Betty Bird asked, but that the gold-brown bobbed curls were being shaken. Can't be done, my love. I've got to practice with Professor Longlocks. Hadn't opened my music book since last week and say if he didn't lay down the law. If I won't practice by myself, he says, then I shall practice in his presence. She drew a long face. Heaven pity me. Then, hurriedly, as they joined the throng in the corridors, she whispered to Rose, who was next to her. Tomorrow will be Saturday. If I live till then, round up the crowd and come over to my house after lunch and be prepared to hear some news. Mary Lee, are you whispering again? Yes, m'am, Miss Liv... Uh, I mean, Miss Preens, but it was awful important. Please excuse me this time, and I will try not to again offend. Such penitence was in the brown eyes that glanced beseechingly up at the spindingly tall monitoress that for the moment Miss Preens was almost inclined to accept the apology. Herding forty girls to the study hall and being sure that none of them whispered was rather of a task, and, right at that very moment, she was sure that she saw two heads near the front, suspiciously close together, and so she pushed through the ranks, at least a head and a half taller than any girl in the school. What a wife she'd make for an ogre, Mary turned, laughing eyes towards the girl following her. It happened to be one of the seniors, and a blue ribbon won at that, and so the humorous suggestion was not meant with appreciation. Mary's mental comment was, "'When I get to be senior, at least I'll be human.' Just as they were entering the study hall for a brief moment, Betty Bird was close. "'I just can't wait till tomorrow,' the youngest member of the SSC whispered. Mary put a warning finger on her lips. Betty glanced up and saw the sharp eyes of Miss Preen turning in their direction. "'Poor Miss Preen,' Mary thought as she sank into her seat and drew a French book from her desk, preparing to study. "'I wouldn't be her, not for a million.' End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 2 Snow Maidens The picturesque village of Sunnyside had one main road, wide, elm-shaded, which began at a beautiful hill-encircled lake, and which, from there, climbed gently up through the business part of the town to the residential, past the orphanage, the fine old seminary for girls, and the even older academy for boys, and then led through the wide open spaces, fertile farms, other scattered villages, and on to Dorchester, a large thriving city forty miles away. Mary Lee's father was a builder and contractor whose offices were in Dorchester but whose home was a comfortable old colonial house in the main thoroughfare in the village of Sunnyside. The large square library of the Lee home was warm and cheerful on that blustery, blizzardy Saturday afternoon. A log was snapping and crackling on the hearth, and a big slate-coloured Persian cat was on the rug, purring happily its content. A long lad, half reclining on a window seat, was reading a detective story and making notes surreptitiously now and then. At a wide front window, Mary Lee stood drumming her fingers on the pane and peering out at the whirling snow. A chiming clock announced that the hour was three, and I told the crowd to be here by two-thirty at the latest. Although the girl had not really been addressing him, the boy glanced up to remark, "'Might as well give up, sis. Girls wouldn't venture out in a storm like this. They are like cats. They like to stay in where it's warm and comfy. 
"'Hey, Muff!' The puss, upon hearing its name, opened one sleepy blue eye, looked at the boy lazily, and then dozed again. Suddenly there was a peal of merry laughter. "'Oh, Jack!' his sister exclaimed gaily. "'Do look out of the window. Did you ever before see such a funny procession?' Jack looked and beheld coming in at the front gate five maidens so covered with snow that it was impossible to tell which was which. Mary whirled to defy her brother. "'Now, sir, you see girls aren't afraid of a little blizzardy weather. I'm certainly glad that they came. I'd burst if I had to keep my secret any longer.' "'Secret?' Jack's voice held a rising inflection, and he looked up with interest. But Mary was on her way to open the front door, that Katie, the maid, did not need be summoned by the bell." A gust of wind and a flurry of flakes first entered, then, what a stamping as there was outside on the storm porch. "'Hail, hail, the gang's all here,' Mary sang out, but quickly added, "'Oh, don't mind about the snow. Come on in. Katie put matting over the carpet.' Then, as she looked from one ruddy, laughing face to the other, the hostess exclaimed, "'But you aren't all here. What's the matter with Rose? Why didn't she come?' Then, before anyone could reply, Mary guessed, "'Oh, I suppose her lady mother was afraid her precious darling would melt or be blown away. "'I don't see how Rose ever gets to school in the winter. "'Her mother coddles her so.' "'Drives, my dear, as you know perfectly well. "'But it seems that today the snowplough hasn't been along Willow Bend Lane "'and her mother won't hear to having the horses taken out. "'Rose tried to call you up, but your phone is on the blink, so she called me.' "'Peg paused for breath, then went on. "'She's simply heartbroken. "'She said she'd give us all the chocolates we could eat "'and a nice hot drink if we'd beg, borrow or steal a sleigh somewhere "'and hold our meeting out there at her house.' "'Mary's face brightened. "'Say, that's a keen idea. "'I was wondering how I could divulge my secret "'with Jack hanging around in the library, "'and I couldn't turn him out very well, "'as it's about the only warm spot in the house except for the kitchen.' "'What's more, I'm crazy to go for a tramp in this snowstorm. "'Wait till I get my leggings and overshoes.' "'They had not long to wait, for in less than five minutes "'Mary reappeared from the cloakroom under the wide winding stairway, "'a fur cap hiding her short curls, a fur coat reaching to her knees, "'and her legs warmly ensconced in leggings of the same soft grey. "'She opened the door to the library and called to her brother, "'who was again deeply engrossed in his book.' "'The cats are about to leave. "'We've decided to hold today's most important meeting "'of our secret society in the palatial home of the Widow Wright. "'I am enlightening you as to our destination, brother dear, "'so that if we happen to be lost in a snowdrift, "'you will know where to come dig us out.' "'Jack leapt to his feet when he saw the merry faces "'of the five girls in the hall, "'but before he could join them, "'they had darted out through the storm porch "'and the wind slammed the door after them.' The boy laughed to himself, then shrugged his shoulders as though he was thinking that the modern girl was beyond his comprehension. Then he returned to the fireplace, dropped down into the comfortable depths of the big easy chair, and continued to read and scribble alternately. He was preparing a paper to be read that night before the secret society to which he belonged, the CDC. The boys had long ago guessed the meaning of the letters that named the girls' club the SSC. Dead easy! Bob Angel had told them, Sunnyside Club, of course, but the girls had never been able to guess the meaning of the boys' CDC, nor did they know where the secret meetings were held. These meetings were always at night, and, although Sunnyside girls were modern as far as their conversation went, due to their parents' antiquated ideas, perhaps they were not considered old enough to roam about the dark streets of the town at night unless accompanied by their brothers or someone older. And, of course, they couldn't find out the secret meeting place of the boys when the members were along, 
and so up to that particular date, January 11th, 1928, the seven SSC girls had not even a suspicion of where the boys' club rooms were located. They had vowed that they would ferret it out if it took a lifetime. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 3 A Merry Adventure The snowplough had been along the wide street and the sidewalks of the main thoroughfares of the town, and the girls had no trouble at all in making headway through the residential and business paths of Sunnyside. But when they turned toward the hills on the west side of the village, they found that the snow ploughs had not been so accommodating. Willowbend Lane was covered with deep, soft snow, and when Bertha Angel, who chanced to be in lead, tried to stand on it, she sank down to her knees. Wading was out of the question. Willowbend Lane was on the outskirts of town, and it was a fully a mile back to the main road. They looked ahead of them across the unbroken snow to where, on a low hill, stood the big brownstone, turreted house in which lived the wealthy Miss Irving Earl Wright and her daughter, Rosamond. "'I wish you'd brought along some snowshoes,' Mary remarked. "'I hate to let a storm stump me. Brother will certainly tease us well if we go back without having reached our destination.' "'I don't think snowshoes would have helped us much,' Bertha Angel commented. "'It's quite a feat to walk on them until one gets on to the trick of it.' "'Hark ye!' Mary exclaimed, lifting a finger of her fur-lined glove. "'I hear sleigh-bells. Somebody is coming. "'And if that somebody's destination happens to be up Willowbend Lane, we'll beg a ride.' "'What if it's somebody we don't know?' Little Betty Bird ventured to inquire, to which Mary, "'How could it be? Wasn't I born here? And don't I know everybody within a million miles?' "'That sounds rather like hyperbole,' Bertha exclaimed. "'Like which?' Doris Drexel teased, and then added, "'Wouldn't Miss Preen be pleased to hear her prize pupil rattling off that fine-sounding word in "'Shh-shh!' Mary's hand was on Dory's arm. "'Our victim is now in sight. "'My, what a swell turnout! "'Some cut of that, isn't it?' The six girls had stepped to one side of the road, and were watching with interest the approach of a large sleigh, which was being drawn at a rapid pace by two big white horses perfectly matched. The driver, as they could discern as it drew near, was a young man who was almost hidden in a big brown fur coat and cap, but his eyes were peering out, and he was amazed to see a bevy of girls standing by the unbroken lane, so evidently in distress. Stopping his horses, he snatched off his fur cap and revealed a frank, boyish face that had not been seen in that neighbourhood before. "'Young ladies,' he said courteously, "'can you direct me to the home of Colonel Wainwright? In the village they told me to follow this road a mile and ask someone which turn to take.' "'Oh, yes, we can tell you,' Mary replied. "'This lane is the short-cut to the Colonel's place.' The lad thanked her, and he was about to drive on. Then he hesitated and turned back. "'Young ladies,' he said, "'I have always told my sister never to ride with strangers, "'but if your destination is in this direction, "'I would be glad to convey you to it. "'I am Alfred Morrison of Dorchester.' "'Oh!' Mary exclaimed brightly. "'My brother, Jack Lee, is acquainted with you, I am sure. "'He goes to school in the city.' The boy's good-looking face plainly showed his pressure. "'Indeed I know old Jack well,' he exclaimed. "'We're doing college prep work together. I planned looking up as soon as I had finished my business call on the Colonel.' Feeling sure that their mother's 
could not object, since the strange boy was so well acquainted with Mary's brother, they swarmed onto the luxurious sleigh, sitting three deep, which but added to their gaiety. The horses were obliged to travel slowly through the drifts, but they soon came to the part of the lane where the wind had blown the snow from the road to be caught at the fences, and then they made a better time. In a very few moments the sleigh was turning in between two high stone gate-posts, as Mary had directed, and shortly thereafter the six girls were tumbling out under a wide sheltering portico. "'We're terribly grateful to you, Mr. Morrison,' Mary exclaimed. "'Maybe we'll be able to pick you up at some time when you're stranded somewhere.' The boy laughed good-naturedly. "'I hope I won't have that long to wait before I can see you all again.' He included the group in his smiling glance. Then, because the spirited horses were restive, he lifted his fur cap and turned his attention towards the prancing span. Laughingly, the girls climbed up the stone steps and were about to ring the bell when the door was thrown open and their prettiest member, as Rose was often called, welcomed them effusively. "'Say, but you missed the time of your young life,' Peggy Pierce informed her as the girls removed their overshoes and leggings in the storm vestibule. "'Such a handsome boy as we had drive us up the lane.' "'Oh, you don't have to tell me,' Rose laughingly replied. "'I was standing in the drawing-room window watching you from the time you appeared at the foot of the lane. "'If you had turned back, I should have been simply heartbroken. "'Mother thinks that I have a cold, and she won't let Tony drive me to town, "'and, of course, I can't use my runabout in weather like this.' Then, when cloaks and caps had been removed, and they were gathered about the wide fireplace in Rose's very own sitting-room, that maiden passed around a five-pound box of chocolates to keep the first part of her promise. Then she demanded, "'Mary Lee, you haven't told the others your exciting news yet, have you?' Bertha Angel answered for their president, "'Nary an inkling of it. To tell truth, we didn't even ask her. I guess we all thought we'd rather wait until the meeting was called.' "'Oh, I say, let's cut out formality for once, can't we?' Peggy Pierce implored. "'Why read the minutes of the last meeting when all we did was entertain the little orphans at the big Christmas tree?' "'All?' Gertrude West lifted her eyebrows questioningly. "'I believe if you left it to the orphans, they would tell you that we did a whole lot to add to their Christmas cheer.' "'Sure thing we did. I'll acknowledge that, but—' "'Come to order, if you please.' president tapped on the arm of her chair which was upholstered in rose-coloured brocade as were the other chairs and the gilt-framed sofa piled high with silken pillows we'll omit reading the minutes because we mustn't stay long it gets dark so early this month and we'll have to wade back through the lane and we won't call the roll because of course we know that we are all here so since i believe you are properly curious i will now tell you my news item I, Mary and Margaret Lee, have discovered the meaning of the letters CDC, and, what is more, I now know what the boys do at their secret meetings. Mary, do you really? How did you ever find out? I've asked Bob over and over to tell me, but he has always refused and has actually declared that we girls would never know. Well, their president said, we do know, at least in part. I hate eavesdropping as much as anyone but when Jack himself shut me in the stuffy little room of the library where we store our old magazines and books, and where I had gone to hunt up an article I needed for a composition, how could I help hearing? Two or three of their CDC club had come along for a special session, I guess. I was just about to burst out when I heard Jack say, Yes, we're alone. All right. Sis went to the library. I think to do some reference work. Then, before I could really do anything, I was so wedged in among piles of magazines, Jack had announced, "'Stay, fellows, but I've got the keenest Conan Doyle book ever. Best ever, I call it.' 
Mary paused and looked around the group, her eyes sparkling triumph. For a moment there was silence, and then, with a wild Indianish whoop, Peggy, her dark face glowing, cried gleefully, "'I tumble!' After glancing about at the others, who were looking rather more puzzled than intelligent, Peg demanded, "'Don't any of you get what Mary is driving at? Bertha, you surely know what the boys mean by their CDC?' "'Of course. How beautifully stupid we are,' Bertha acknowledged. "'The Conan Doyle Club. Oh, wouldn't the boys rage and tear at their hair if they knew we'd even guessed at that much?' But it was quite plain to the group that Mary had still more to divulge. "'Who is Conan Doyle, anyway?' the youngest asked. "'What kind of books did he write?' "'My child,' said Bertha condescendingly. "'Hast never heard of Sherlock Holmes, the great detective?' "'Oh, of course I have,' Betty Bird replied. "'Then the boys have a detective club. Is that it, Mary?' The girl addressed finished eating an especially big oozy chocolate before she noddingly replied. "'That's it, all right. I gathered from the little I heard that each member of the club wants to become a detective, when he is a man of estate, and the things they do at their club is take turns in making up a mystery, and the other boys have to try and solve it.' "'Say, what fun that would be! I wish they would let girls join their club,' Doris Drexel remarked, but Mary put in. "'Oh, you wouldn't wish it, young lady, if you knew, as I do, how little they think of our intelligences.' One of them, I couldn't tell which, had written to a lawyer uncle in New York, telling about their club, and in reply their uncle had told about some young woman detective in his employ, and how clever she was. At which Jack sniffed, well, she must be an exception, all right. I can't imagine my sister Mary, or any of her crowd, solving a mystery, not if the clues were spread out in front of them. Bob laughed at that in his good-natured way, and replied that there wasn't much danger of anyone getting a chance to solve a mystery in this little lakeside town, where nothing ever happened that was in the least unusual. Then he said, that's why we have to make up our own mysteries, since we can't unearth any real ones to practice on. All the while that Mary had been talking, Peg had been sitting on the edge of her chair, looking as though she would burst if she didn't soon get a chance to say what was on her mind. The moment their president paused, she leaped in with, "'Girls, I thought of the most scrumbunctious idea. Let's have a detective club of our own, and let's find a real mystery to solve and show those boys a thing or two. Won't they be humiliated good and proper when they learn that we, seven mere girls without intelligence, have solved the greatest mystery that ever occurred in the village of Sunnyside?' "'Hold on, Peg. Your imagination is running away with you. Anyone would think you've already found the mystery to solve.' I'm of the opinion that Jack is right, or Bob, whoever said it, that there is never anything mysterious happening in this sleepy, quiet old town, and if there isn't, how, pray, can we solve it? Bertha was always logical and practical. Their balance wheel, she was sometimes called. I bet you I find a mystery, Peg stood up as though she were going to start out on the search. I've always been wild about mystery stories, read every one at the library, and I'll know just how to go about solving one, when it's found. "'Sit down, friend sleuth, and tell us your plan. "'There are possibilities in it, I agree.' "'Mary smiled up into the olive face of the most energetic member, "'as she continued reminiscently. "'In the beginning we named our club the SSC, "'because we lived in Sunnyside. "'Then we gradually added a second meaning to please our saintly Gertrude. "'You're a tease!' "'The sweet-faced girl, their minister's daughter, "'smiled lovingly at the speaker, "'who continued as though unconscious of the interruption, "'which was Spread Sunshine Club.' We proceeded to sew for missionary barrels, though heaven help the heathen who had to wear the clothes I made if they care anything about a stylish fit. A burst of merry laughter proved that her listeners were recalling some garment made by their president that had not come up to set specification. 
Then we decided to centre our spreading sunshine efforts on our home orphanage. Shh, don't say anything, Trudy. I know we've done nobly and all that, but now I feel about the way Peg does, that if we keep on being so saintly, I'll be drawn up heavenward before I have a real fling. So what I am going to suggest is that we add a third meaning to our club letters, which shall be... Oh, Madam President, may I say what? Peggy was again on the edge of her chair, waving a frantic hand as though she was a child in school. Sure thing. Shoot. How would Seventh Sluice Club do for the new meaning? Actually inspired, I should say. Now, all that is left to find is a mystery to solve. Peggy Pierce, I appoint you and your twin friend Doris Drexel, a committee of two, to find a mystery before our next meeting, which is to be held at Bertha Angel's home one week from today. If by that time you have failed, I will appoint... Fail? Dory and I don't know the meaning of the word, that slender maid retorted. Bertha, who was nearest the window, then exclaimed, "'Someone is driving in. Why, if it isn't that nice Alfred Morrison!' "'Great!' Mary declared. "'Now we can get a ride out of the lane. I do believe that is why he is coming.' And she was right. Rose answered the door before a maid could appear, and the youth, cap in hand, informed her that he had happened to think that since the young ladies had no way to get to the lane, perhaps they had no way to get out.' Rose replied in her pretty manner that she knew the girls would be glad to go with him. Then she invited him in to have a cup of hot chocolate, which, even then, a maid was passing to the club members, having been told to appear at that particular hour. Without the least sign of embarrassment, the boy joined the girls in the cosy little sitting-room off the big library, and drank a cup of hot chocolate as though he really enjoyed it. Half an hour later, as the sun was setting, Mary said with apparent solemnity, "'Now we will adjourn the meeting.' which I believe has been most satisfactory, and let me urge each and every one of our members to remember that all that has passed today is most secret, and no matter how the boys of the CDC might pry, not an inkling of what has occurred here is to be divulged to them. Then, twinkling-eyed, she changed her tone to one more natural. Won't they have the surprise of their young lives, though, if we do succeed? No ifs, Peg interjected with determination. We will. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of the Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 4 Interesting News the midwinter blizzard continued, and so intense was the cold, and so unceasing the cutting, icy blast, that Mr. Morrist, at the request of several parents, sent forth a messenger to inform the day pupils that classes would not be resumed till the storm had subsided. But wind, ice, and snow had no terrors for the members of the SSC, and since important matters were afoot in the reorganization of their club, it was decided, by whose phones had not been put out of use by the tempest, to beg or borrow a sleigh and hold the meeting at the home of Bertha Angel on Monday instead of the following Saturday. Mr. Angel, being a grocer, possessed several delivery sleighs, and since Bertha could drive as well as her brother Bob, Mary, whose phone was out of order, was amazed to see such an equipage draw up in front of her door at about two on that blizzardy afternoon. Her first thought was that Bob was delivering groceries, but why at the front of the house, since he always went in at the side drive? Then, as the snow curtain lifted a little, she discerned the forms of several persons warmly wrapped and actually huddled on the straw-covered box part of the delivery sleigh. 
The driver was tooting on a horn and looking hopefully towards the house. Then it dawned on Mary that it was Bertha who was driving, and not Bob, as she had supposed. In a twinkling she leaped at the door of the storm vestibule and called that she would be right with them. And she was, clad in her warmest, an Esquimau girl could not have been more hidden in fur. How her brown eyes sparkled as she climbed up on the front seat by the driver, which place had been reserved for her since she was president. Of all the grand and glorious surprises, she exclaimed, glancing back at the laughing huddle as Bertha drove out of the gate, why, I declare to it, you've even got our rosebud. How did you manage that? I didn't think her mother would let her out of the house again until next summer. It took lots of love and suasion, I can assure you, Rose replied, and I don't even know if that would have worked had it not been that an old friend whom mother hadn't seen in years arrived in a station sleigh to spend the afternoon, and in order to be freed from my teasing, the lovely lady said, Wrap up well and take a foot warmer. Three cheers for the friend, Mary said, then added, drawing her fur coat closer, My, how dense the snow is! Give me that horn, Bursie, I'll toot it so other vehicles will know that we are coming. The comfortable old white house set among tall evergreen trees that was the angel's home was in the centre of the town on the long main street and not far from the angel's grocery, the best of its kind in the village. Bertha drove close to the front steps, bade the girls go right in and wait for her in the sitting room while she took the delivery sleigh back to the store. But hardly had they swarmed out when a merry whistle was heard through the curtain of snow and the form of a heavy-set boy appeared. Oh good, here comes Bob, his sister called. I'd know that whistle in darkest Africa. It out-robins a robin for cheeriness. Hello, SSEs, a jolly voice called, and then a walking snowman stopped at the foot of the steps and waved a white arm to the girls who were standing under the shelter of the porch roof. Going to spread more sunshine today? Well, it sure is needed. Bertha, having climbed down, Bob leaped up on the high seat and took the reins. Then, with a good-natured grin on his ruddy, freckled face, the boy called, it was shabby of us to guess what your SSC meant, wasn't it? Boys are clever in that way, but girls aren't supposed to be very clever, you know. If they're good-looking and good cooks, that's all we of the superior sex expect of them. Indeed, is that so, Mr. Bob? Peggy just could not keep quiet. I suppose you think we never could guess the meaning of your CDC? I know you couldn't, Bob replied with such conviction that Mary, fearing that it would tantalise Peg into betraying their knowledge, changed the subject with... "'Suppose you'll take us all home, Bob, before dark sets in?' right oh was the cheery response as the boy started the big dapple horse roadward. Fifteen minutes later the girls were seated about the wide fireplace in the large, comfortably furnished living room. This home lacked the elegance that was to be found in the palatial residence of Rose, nor did it have the many signs of culture that Mary's father and mother had collected in their travels, but there was a homely atmosphere about it that was very pleasant.' Mrs. Angel, short, plump, cheerful, whom Bob closely resembled, appeared for a moment to greet the girls and then returned to a task in another part of the house. Bertha, who had disappeared, soon returned with a huge wicker basket. I thought we might just as well keep on with our spread sunshine activities, she explained, even though we have added a new meaning to our SSC. She was taking out small, all-over aprons of blue gingham as she spoke. The name of a girl was pinned to each one. "'Sure thing!' Mary reached for her garment. "'Our fingers can sew for the orphans while our tongues can unravel mysteries, "'if,' her eyes were twinkling as they turned inquiringly toward Peggy Pierce, "'our committee of two has unearthed one yet.' "'Of course we haven't,' was the maiden's indignant response. "'How could we find a mystery in a snowstorm like this?' "'True enough,' Mary said in a more consolatory tone. "'I really had not expected you to.' 
In truth, Rose curled in the big easy chair near the fire, putting teasingly, For that matter, we don't expect a real mystery to be unearthed in this little sound-asleep town of Sunnyside. Goodness, don't we know everybody in it, and don't our parents know their parents, and their grandparents, and— Well, somebody new might come to town, Doris, the second member of the sleuth committee, remarked hopefully. "'Sure thing, someone might,' Mary said, with such an emphasis on the last word that Bertha dropped her work in her lap to comment. "'You speak as though you knew that someone new is coming.' "'I do,' Mary replied calmly, bending over her sewing, that the girls might not see how eager she was to tell them her news. "'Stop being so tantalising, Mary. What in the world do you know today that you didn't know Saturday?' Peg inquired. "'Oh, I know, I know,' Rose sang out. "'It's something that handsome boy Alfred Morrison told you when he went to call on Jack. "'Out with it, Mary. Don't keep us in suspense.' "'Of course. How stupid we didn't think to ask what happened after you and Alfred Morrison had left us at our homes,' Doris put in. "'We knew he was going with you to call on Jack. Is he coming to live in Sunnyside? Say, wouldn't it be keen if he did?' "'Well, you are all warm, anyway,' Mary conceded. "'The someone who is coming to live in Sunnyside, I mean the someone to whom I am referring, is a girl.' "'but I guess we won't want to cultivate her acquaintance at all, at all.' "'Mary Lee, if you don't tell us, I shall come over there and shake you until you do.' "'Betty Bird was so tiny that this threat made the girls all laugh gaily. "'But it had the desired effect, for their president ceased teasing "'and told them a story which interested them greatly. "'End of chapter 4 "'Chapter 5 of the Seventh Sleuths Club "'This is a LibriVox recording.' All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 5 A Mischievous Plan Well, to begin at the beginning, Jack was as pleased as punch to see Alfred Morrison, and for the first fifteen minutes they talked of nothing but college prep, athletics, fraternities and the like. Then mother called me and I left them alone in the library. When I returned, half an hour later, Alfred was gone, but this is the tale brother told me. It seems our new friend has a sister about our age, Geraldine by name. Oh-ho, Bertha put in. Then that is who the newcomer to our town is to be. Peg laughed. We'll have to put you on the sleuth committee, Bertie, but do hurry and tell us the worst. Perhaps it is the best, Gertrude suggested. "'but Mary shook her head. "'Worst is more like it. "'But here goes. "'Mr. Morrison, their father, lived in this village when he was a boy. "'He was mischievous and willful, "'and he had trouble with his father, who was stern and unrelenting. "'When he was sixteen, he ran away to sea "'and was gone three years on a voyage around the world. "'When he returned, he went west, "'where he married and made a good deal of money in railroads and mines.' During this time he had often written to his mother, begging to be forgiven, but his letters were always returned to him, and so he supposed that his parents no longer cared for him. At last, however, when his wife died, leaving him with two small children, he came back to Dorchester, only to find that his father and mother were gone, and the old home falling into rack and ruin. Sad at heart, he settled in the city where Alfred and his sister were brought up by tutors and a governess. "'Oh, the poor things!' Doris Drexel said pityingly. "'My heart aches for any boy or girl brought up without knowing the tenderness of a mother's love.' "'That brings the story up to the present,' Mary continued. "'Last week Mr. Morrison left very suddenly for Europe in the interests of his business, and he may be gone all winter. 
He did not want to leave his son and daughter alone in the city house with the servants, and so he sent Alfred down here to see Colonel Wainwright, who was his old pal when a boy, to ask him if they might remain with him for a few months. The colonel was delighted, Alfred told Jack, and so they are both coming to our village to spend the winter. But, Mary, why do you think that is not good news? I think it will be jolly fun to have another girl friend. There's always room for one more. Gertrude said this in her kindly way, but Peg protested. There certainly isn't room for one more in the Seventh Sleuths Club. Indeed not, Mary seconded. But don't worry, the haughty Miss Geraldine won't want to associate with simpering cultry milkmaids. With what? Every girl in the room dropped her sewing on her lap and stared in amazement. Mary laughed as she replied, "'Just that, no less. I knew how indignant you'd all be. I would, too, if it weren't so powerfully funny. I'd pity the cow I'd try to milk.' "'What reason have you for thinking this girl, Geraldine, will be such a snob?' Gertrude asked as she resumed her sewing. "'Reason enough,' Mary told them. Alfred said that his sister was very angry when she heard that her father was going to send her to such a backwoodsy place, meaning our village.' and she declared that she would simply not go. She, Geraldine Morrison, who was used to having four servants wait upon her to live in an old country house, where she would probably have to demean herself by making her old bed? No, never. She raged and stormed, Alfred said, and declared that she would go visit some cousins in New York, but to that her father would not listen. He told her that he wanted his little girl, who is none too robust, to spend a winter breathing the country air in the village where he was a boy. Of course, since Geraldine is only sixteen, she had to give in, and so next week she is to arrive, bag and baggage. She told Alfred that he needn't think for one moment that she was going to hobnob with silly, simpering country milkmaids. Alfred said that he hated to tell Jack this, but he liked us so much he wanted us to be prepared so they would not be hurt by his sister's rudeness. There were twinkles appearing in the eyes of the mischievous Peggy. "'Oh, girls,' she said gaily, "'I've just thought of the best joke to play on this haughty young lady "'who calls us simpering milkmaids. "'Let's pretend that is what we really are, "'and let's call on her and act the part. "'We're all crazy about private theatricals. "'Here's our chance.' "'Say, but that's a keen idea,' Mary agreed chucklingly. Then they chatted merrily as they laid their plans. They would give the new girl a few days to become used to the village, then, en masse, they would go up to Colonel Rainwright's and call upon her. There was so much laughter and such squeals of delight in the next half hour that Mrs. Angel, appearing in the doorway with a platter of heaped doughnuts, was moved to inquire, "'What mischief are you girls up to? I never before heard so much giggling.' Her beaming expression proved to them that she was not displeased. Oh, Mrs. Angel, you surely were well named. Such doughnuts. Do leave the platter, please. This one has melted in my mouth already. I do hope Bob won't come before we have eaten them, were the other remarks that were uttered as the doughnuts vanished. Bertha, her eyes brimming with laughter, had disappeared to return a second later with a tray of glasses and a huge blue crockery pitcher. This drink is appropriate, if nothing else, she announced gaily as she placed her burden on the long library table and began to pour out the creamy milk. "'It didn't take you long to milk a cow,' Peg sang out. "'Yum, this puts the fresh in refreshments.' "'Oh, Peg, don't try to be so funny. "'Can't be done, old dear,' Mary teased. "'Then held up a warning finger. "'Hark, I hear sleigh bells coming. "'It's Bob, and Jack is with him. "'A lack for us and the six left doughnuts. "'Oh, well, they deserve them, if anyone does. "'Coming after us in a storm like this,' Gertrude remarked as she folded her sewing. I'm glad they've come, for Mother doesn't feel very well, and I wanted to be home in time to get supper. A 
second later there was a great stamping on the side porch and the boys after having brushed each other free of snow entered caps in hands bully for us said bob believe me i know when to time my arrival at these spread on the sunshine club meetings however wishing to be polite i'll wait until they're past courteous as his words were he did not fit his action to them for having reached the table he poured a tumbler of milk for jack and tossed him a doughnut which jack caught skilfully in his teeth the girls always an appreciative audience laughed and clapped their hands bertha it was nice of you to provide a juggler to amuse your guests rose remarked jack must have been a doggy in a former existence peg teased sure thing i was the boy replied good-naturedly i'd heaps rather have been a dog than a cat sir peg sat up and threateningly near are there any concealed inferences in that nary a one i think in a former existence you girls must have all been sunbeams ha ha bob's hearty laughter expressed his enjoyment of the joke that's a good one but do get a move on young ladies i've got to deliver groceries after i have delivered you the girls flocked from the room leaving the boys to finish the doughnuts in the wide front hall as they were donning their wraps they did a good deal of whispering meet at my house tomorrow afternoon peggy told them bring any old duds you can find and we'll make up our milkmaid costumes and have a dress rehearsal end of chapter five chapter six of the seven sleuths club this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the seven sleuths club by carol norton chapter six milkmaids and butter churners the next day arrived as next day's will and as the blizzard had blown itself away and only a soft feathery snow was falling the girls communicating by the repaired telephone system decided to walk to the home of peggy pierce which was centrally located in fact it was on a quiet side street below the tracks not a fashionable neighbourhood but that mattered not at all to the girls of sunnyside the parents of some of the seven were the richest in town others were just moderately well off but one and all were able to send their daughters to the seminary and that constituted the main link that bound them together for they saw each other every day and walked back and forth together peggy's father owned the emporium a typical village dry goods store peg threw the door open as soon as the girls appeared at the wooden gate in the fence that surrounded the rather small yard of her home hooray for the s s c she sang out and mary replied with the inevitable hail hail the gang's all here when they were in the vestibule and peg with a small broom had swept from each the soft snow they flocked into the double parlours which were being warmed by a cosy air-tight stove on the walls were old-fashioned family portraits and the haircloth furniture proclaimed to the most casual observer that it had seen its best days but as in the home of bertha there was an atmosphere of comfort and cheer which made one feel pleased to be there a dear little old lady sat between the window and the stove she pushed her specks up on the ruffle of her lavender ribboned cap and beamed at the girls as they entered then laying down her knitting she held out a softly wrinkled hand to gertrude who was the first at her side i hope you girls won't mind my being here she said looking from one to another i could go somewhere else if you would well grandmother dorcas i'll say you'll not go anywhere else peggy declared at once for one thing there isn't another real warm room in this house except the kitchen and secondly we all want you to help us play this prank the old lady who had partly risen sank back as she looked lovingly at her grandchild 
To the others, she said, it's mighty nice of Peggy to want me to share her good times. Some young folks don't do that. They think grandparents are too old to enjoy things, I guess, but I feel just as young inside as I did when I was your age, and that was a good many years ago. Now go right ahead, just like I wasn't here. The dear old lady took up her knitting, replaced her glasses, and began to make the needles fly dexterously. "'Did you all find suitable costumes?' the hostess asked. "'I didn't,' Betty Bird declared. "'You know when Mother and I came up from the South to keep house for Uncle George, "'we only brought our newest clothes, and nothing that was suitable for a milkmaid costume.' "'Well, don't you worry, little one,' Peggy laughingly declared, "'for Betty's pretty face was looking quite dismal. "'My grandmother Dorcas has saved everything she wore since she was a little girl, I do believe, "'and now she is eighty years old.' There are several trunks full of things in the attic. I told Grandma about our plan, and she was so amused, more than Geraldine will be, I'm sure of that. I thought we'd go up there to dress. It's real warm, for Mother has been baking all the morning, and the kitchen chimney goes right through the storeroom, and it's as cosy as can be. Then, to the little old lady who was somewhat deaf, the girl said in a louder voice, Grandma, dear, when we're dressed, we'll come down here and show you how we look. The sweet, wrinkled old face beamed with pleasure. "'Good, good,' she said. "'I'll want to see you.' All of the girls except Betty had bundles or satchels, and merrily they followed their young hostess upstairs to the attic. They found the small trunk room cosy and warm, as Peggy had promised. On the wall hung a long-racked mirror, and a few chairs that were out of repair stood about the walls. Several trunks there were, including one that looked very old indeed. For a jolly half-hour the girls tried on the funny old things they had found in the trunks, utilising some of the garments they had brought from their homes, and at the end of that time they were costumed to their complete satisfaction. In front of the long, cracked mirror, Rose stood laughing merrily. "'Oh, girls!' she exclaimed. "'Don't I look comical?' She surely did, for, on top of her yellow curls, she had a red felt hat with a very high crown, which had been in vogue many years before. This Peggy had trimmed with a pink ribbon and a green feather. An old-fashioned calico dress with a bright red sash and fingerless gloves finished the costume. The other girls were gowned just as outlandishly, and they laughed until the rafters rang. "'Peggy, you are funniest of all,' Mary declared. "'That's because she has six braids sticking out in all directions,' Betty Bird said, with different coloured piece of calico tied to each one.' "'Honestly, girls, I have laughed until my sides ache,' Doris Drexel said. "'But what I would like to know is how we are ever going to keep straight faces when we get there. "'If one of us laughs, that will give the whole thing away.' "'We had practice enough in that comedy we gave last spring at school,' Bertha Angel said. "'Don't you remember we had to look as solemn as owls all through that comical piece? "'Well, what we did once we can do again.' "'I did giggle just a little,' the youngest confessed. "'Betty Bird, don't you dare giggle!' Peggy shook a warning finger at the little maid. Then she added, "'It's such a lot of work to get all decked up like this. I wish we could make that call today.' Mary's face brightened. "'We can! I actually forgot to tell you that Alfred Morrison was over last night to see Brother, and told him they had arrived a day sooner than they had expected.' "'Hooray for us!' Doris sang out. "'It does seem like wasted effort to get all togged up this way just for a rehearsal.' "'Let's go downstairs and speak our parts before Grandma Dorcas. "'Then we'll find someone to drive us out. "'I'll phone the store and see if I can borrow Johnny Cowles. "'He's delivering from the Emporium now, "'and I guess this snowy day he can spare the time.' "'This being agreed upon, they descended to the living room. "'The girls pretended that Grandma Dorcas was the proud Geraldine, "'and they were calling upon her. "'The old lady enjoyed her part and did it well. 
Then Johnny appeared with the sleigh, and the girls gleefully departed. End of chapter 6 Chapter 7 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 7 An Unwilling Hostess Meanwhile, in the handsome home of Colonel Wainwright, on the hill road overlooking the distant lake, a very disconcerted girl sat staring moodily into the fireplace of a luxuriously furnished living room. Her brother stood near, leaning against the mantelpiece. "'I won't stay here,' Geraldine declared, her dark eyes flashing rebelliously. "'I won't. I won't. Father has no right to send me to this backwoods country village. What if he was born here?' That was surely his misfortune, and no sensible reason why I should be condemned to be buried here for a whole winter. But, sister mine, the boy said in a consolatory tone, I've been trying to tell you that there are some nice girls living in Sunnyside, but you won't let me. If you would join their school life, you would soon be having a jolly time. That's what I mean to do. Alfred Morrison, I don't see how you came by such plebeian ideas. I should think that you would be ashamed to have your sister attending a district school when you know that I have always been a pupil at the most fashionable seminary and have associated only with the best people. What makes them best, sister? The girl tapped one daintily slippered foot impatiently as she said scathingly, Alfred, you are so provoking sometimes. You know the Ellingsworths and the Drexels and all the people are considered the best in Dorchester. Alfred was about to reply that there was a family of Drexels living in Sunnyside. But, luckily, before he had said it, his attention was attracted by the ringing of a cowbell, which seemed to be out in the driveway. Geraldine also heard, but did not look up. Some delivery wagon, she thought. But Alfred, who stood so that he could look out of the window, understood what was happening when he saw the village girls descending from a delivery sleigh. They slipped out of their fur coats, leaving them in Johnny's care, and appeared in shawls and old-fashioned capes. For a puzzled moment, Alfred gazed. Then, as something of the meaning of the joke flashed over him, he almost laughed aloud. Luckily, Geraldine continued to stare moodily into the fire, nor did she look up when Alfred left the room. Before the girls on the porch had time to ring the bell, the boy opened the door, and, stepping out, he asked quietly, but with twinkling eyes, "'Why the masquerade?' "'Don't you dare spoil the joke,' Mary warned when she had told him that since his sister had expected them to be milkmaids, they had not wanted to disappoint her." Then she informed him, "'My name is Miss Turnip. You introduce me, and I'll introduce the others.' Alfred's eyes were laughing, but in a low voice he said, "'I'm game.' Then aloud he exclaimed, "'How do you do, Miss Turnip? I am so glad that you came to call. Bring your friends right in. My sister will be pleased to meet you.' Mary, in telling Jack about it afterwards, said that Alfred played his part as though he had been practising it for weeks." "'Sister Geraldine,' he called pleasantly to the girl who had risen and was standing haughtily by the fireplace, "'permit me to present the young ladies who live in Sunnyside. They have very kindly called to welcome you to their village.' The newcomers all made bobbing curtsies, and, to her credit be it said, that even little Betty did not giggle. But, oh, how hard it was not to! Of course there had been classes in good breeding in the Dorchester Seminary.' One of the rules often emphasised was that it did not matter how a hostess might feel towards a guest, she must not be rude in her own home. So, Geraldine bowed coldly and asked the young ladies to be seated. Alfred, daring to remain no longer, bolted to his room and laughed so hard that he said afterwards that he couldn't get his face straight for a week. 
Peggy Pierce, being the best actress among the sunny seven, had been asked to take the lead, and so, when they were all seated as awkwardly as possible, she began. "'My name is Mirandy Perkins. We all heard as how ow come to town, and so we thought as how we drop in and ask ow if you jine with our literary society. We do have the best times. Next week we're going to have a pumpkin social. Each gal is to bring a pumpkin pie, and each fellow is to bring a many pennies as he is old to help buy a new town pump for the square. That's why it's called a pumpkin social. This remark was unexpected, not having been planned at the dress rehearsal, and it struck Rosamond as being so funny that she spluttered suspiciously, and, taking out a big red cotton handkerchief, she changed the laugh into a sneeze. Geraldine sat stiffly gazing at her callers with an expression that would have frozen them to silence had they been as truly rural as they were pretending. But, if she had only known it, these country girls had been attending a school every bit as fashionable as the seminary of which she so often boasted. "'I thank you,' that young lady replied, "'but it is not my intention to remain in this backwoodsy place. I plan leaving here next week at the latest. Well, now, ain't that too bad?' "'We thought as how it would be such an addition to our society,' Peggy continued her part. "'Of course we all feel real citified ourselves. We get the latest styles right from Dorchester for our toggins.' Toggins? Geraldine repeated icily. Just what are they? There surely was a titter somewhere, but Peggy, pretending to be surprised, remarked, Why, toggins are hats, and things like Jerushi's here. She nodded at the caricature of a red hat with green and pink trimmings which was perched on Rosamond's head. Mary returned to the rehearsal lines from which they had been sidetracked. You'd enjoy a literary society, I'm sure, she said, being as you had a literary sort of look. We meet once a week around different houses. We sew on things for the missionary barrel, and then one of us reads aloud from the farmer's weekly. Just then the clock on the mantelpiece chimed the hour of four, and Peggy sprang up. Cricket, she exclaimed. Here's tis coming on dark most, and me not home to milk those cows. And I got a churn yet before supper, Doris Drexel ventured her first remark. Luckily, Geraldine did not glance at the soft white hands of the speaker. They were all smiling in the friendliest fashion, but as soon as they were outside and riding away in their queer equipage, they shouted and laughed as they had never laughed before. "'Her Highness will probably leave town tomorrow,' Doris remarked, "'but if she does, the town will be well rid of her.' "'I wonder if we put it on too thick,' Bertha questioned as they were slipping on their fur coats, which they had left in the sleigh. "'I was afraid she would see through our joke.' "'I don't believe she did,' Mary said. "'Alfred told Jack that his sister got her ideas of girls who live in country villages from the moving pictures, "'and they are always as outlandishly dressed as we are.' "'Well, it'll be interesting to see what comes of our nonsense,' Gertrude remarked. "'On the whole, I feel rather sorry for that poor, unhappy girl.' "'When Alfred saw the queer equipage disappearing, he descended to the library. "'Oh, hello, sis,' he said. "'Have your callers gone?' Geraldine's eyes flashed, and she stamped her small foot as she said, "'Alfred Morrison, I just know that you asked those dreadful creatures to call on me. I suppose you would like to have me attend their pumpkin social, which is to be given to raise money to buy a town pump.' This was too much for Alfred, and he laughed heartily. "'Well,' he said at last, when he could speak, "'I take my hat off to the young ladies of Sunnyside. They are the cleverest damsels that I ever met.' So saying, he disappeared, fearing that he would break his promise to Mary and reveal that it was all a joke if he remained any longer with his indignant sister. Geraldine would probably have packed her trunk that very night and departed the next day if she had sufficient money with which to buy a ticket, but for some reason her monthly allowance from her father had been delayed. End of chapter 7
Chapter Eight of the Seven Sleuths Club. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter Eight. Three Letters. The following morning, Colonel Wainwright called the girl into his study and, laying his hand on her shoulder, he said, "Little lassie." Why don't you try to please your daddy and go to school in the village here at least until the spring vacation? Then, as you know, you will be able to return to Mrs. Potter's seminary if you wish. If I wish, Colonel Wainwright, the maiden exclaimed, "Why, of course, I wish to go back there this very minute, where I can associate with girls who are my equals. I am sorry to seem ungrateful to you, Colonel, but I must simply leave this horrid village. I wish you could have seen the outlandish girls who called on me yesterday." What would Adeline Drexel or Muriel Ellingsworth think if they knew I was associating with milkmaids and and butter churners? Alfred had told the older manner about the joke which had been played on poor Geraldine, and he had been much amused. Before he could reply, however, the doorbell rang. The postman, I expect, the Colonel said as he went into the hall. Good, Geraldine exclaimed. I do hope he has a letter for me from Papa. It's long past time for my allowance, and I simply must have it. There were two letters for the girl, but neither bore the desired postmark. Oh dear! It is so provoking," she declared, and then she climbed the stairs to her room. Colonel Wainwright did not tell her that one of his envelopes bore her father's handwriting. Again, in his study, he opened and read the letter. "Dear old pal, your report of my little girl is discouraging, but we must remember that she was brought up without a mother and has undoubtedly received false ideas of life from her associates, a few of whom I do not approve." Geraldine had, while in Dorchester, two intimate friends who were very unlike. Adeline Drexel is a very nice, wholesome girl whose ancestors have been gentry for generations. But my chief reason for sending my daughter to Sunnyside was to separate her from her chosen companion, Muriel Eldingsworth. Alfred has been much concerned about this friendship. He has often told me that Muriel, who is pretty in doll fashion, makes secret engagements with boys of whom her mother would not approve, and she invites my little girl to join them. Now I want Geraldine to have boyfriends in a frank, open way. But of this sub-rosed business, my son and I heartily disapprove. And since my daughter hasn't a mother to guide her, I decided that nothing would do her as much good as a winter spent in the wholesome atmosphere of Sunnyside. Where the rich and poor play together in a happy, healthy way, Geraldine will feel terribly about it at first. But I am hoping that she is intrinsically too much like her splendid mother to remain a snob when she is convinced that among her class she will not find the worthwhile people. It was mighty good of you, old pal, to help me out in this matter. But if you find the task a troublesome one, pack her up and send her to a good boarding school until I return. I am enclosing a cheque. Do not give my little girl much at a time. Just sufficient for her needs. Some day I will do something for you. Yours, A. L. The Colonel reread the letter and then, leaning over the fireplace, he carefully burnt it. The cheque he placed in his long pocket book. Poor girl, he mused as he watched the last bit of white paper charring amongst the coals. How disappointed she will be at first! She has many hard lessons to learn, but her father was wise to send her here, where the girls are also wholesome and still children at heart. Then his pleasant face wrinkled into a smile as he thought of the prank which those same wholesome girls had played only the day before upon the poor, unsuspecting city maiden. I wonder if she will ever forgive them when she finds out it was all a joke. She will probably be very indignant at first. 
"'Well,' he added, as he turned away and put on his great coat, preparing to take his daily constitutional into town, "'this winter's experience will prove of what fibre the girl is really made, and, somehow, in spite of her present snobbiness and vanity, I have faith in her.' Meanwhile Geraldine, up in her pleasant room, was seated on an easy chair close to the fire on the hearth. She was reading the letters, which were from her two best girlfriends. Out of the first letter that Geraldine opened there fluttered a Kodak picture. A pretty yet weak face smiled at, at her. It was Muriel Ellingsworth. It had been taken at the public baths. Tom Blakely was also in the picture, and, as Geraldine well knew, Muriel's mother had forbidden her daughter to go either with that boy or to the public bathing pool. In a languid scrawl the letter assured her dearest friend that she was just terribly missed, and suggested that Geraldine run away. "'I do wish I had some money to send you, poor dear, but I haven't. I spent the last penny of my allowance buying a pair of silk stockings. They are simply adorable. They have open work edged with gold thread, and of course I had to buy the slippers to match, and they have gold buckles.' You remember Mother said, positively, that I must not have them, and so I keep them over at Kitty Beverley's, and when I go out with Tom I stop there and put them on. As usual, I was asked what I had done with my allowance, but I was expecting it, and I had an answer ready. I said I had given it to the poor baby's milk fund. Geraldine dropped the letter in her lap and gazed at the fire. Lying was repugnant to her. She had always told the truth fearlessly, and has taken the consequences. Then she continued reading the indolent scrawl. "'Oh, Jerry, dear, I have another piece of news to tell you. "'Adelaine Drexel took it upon herself to preach to me the other day after school. "'She told me that if I continued to meet boys and go to the public baths and places like that, "'she feared that I would be asked to leave the seminary. "'And then, if you please, the minx told me that she hoped the advice would be taken as kindly as it was given. "'I told her in my best French to mind her own business, and I haven't spoken to her since. "'And if you are my best friend, you will snub her too.' She is expecting a letter from you, but if I hear that you have written her, I shall know that you have taken her side against your devoted ducky Muriel. Again, Geraldine gazed in the fire. All these dishonourable things looked so different in cold black and white. When Muriel herself was telling them in her vivacious, chattery manner, they didn't seem half so, well, yes, dishonest was the word, and Geraldine had inherited her father's scorn for dishonesty. With a sigh she opened the other letter and read the pretty, evenly written words. "'Dear little neighbour who is so far away, you can't think how lonely it seems to have the big house next door closed up so tight. Every morning I go to the window hoping to wave you a greeting in the old way, but all I see is a drawn curtain and a snow-piled ledge. How suddenly everything happened! Truly, Geraldine, I do envy you. You can have such a nice time in a village, and I have the dearest cousin living in Sunnyside.' You have often heard me speak of Doris Drexel, but you were away last year when she visited me. I'll write a little note of introduction, and I do wish that you would take today and call upon my dear cousin Doris. Tell her that you are the friend I love most, and that we have been chums ever since our doll days, though truly my doll days aren't over yet. I have the tenderest feelings for Pagotti Anne, and I tell her all my secrets. You will be sorry to hear that Muriel and I are not on speaking terms. I did not mean to hurt her, but she thinks I did. Now, dear little neighbour, do write soon to your loving, lonesome friend, Adeline. And so she had to choose between them. How different the two girls were, she mused. Both sixteen, but one was vain and pretty, thinking only of clothes and boys, while the other, still a little girl at heart, told secrets to her doll. Geraldine smiled as she remembered the Christmas when the doll first arrived. 
What happy times she and Adeline had had together! They had been playmates for years, and what a loyal friend her little neighbour had always been. Springing up from her chair, she opened her desk as she thought, I'll write to Adeline this very moment and tell her I am just as lonely for her as she is for me. For the next half an hour, the only sound in the room was the crackling of the fire and the scratching of a pen. Geraldine had made her choice. When the letter was finished, the girl arose and slipped on her beautiful blue velvet coat with its deep squirrel fur collar and cuffs and a jaunty blue velvet cap. Then, going down the hall, she tapped on a closed door. "'Who's there?' The voice sounded as though it came from the depths of many cushions, as indeed it did, for Alfred, buried among them on his lounge, was reading an absorbing story. "'Brother, I wish you would drive me into the village. I have a letter that I would like to mail to-day.' The door was flung open, and the lad exclaimed, "'I'll tell you what, sis, let's walk to town. It's glorious weather, and Dad told me especially that he wanted us to tramp about the way he did when he was a boy.' Geraldine pouted. "'Oh, Alfred,' she said, "'you know I don't like to walk, and certainly you wouldn't expect me to wade through snowdrifts like a country girl. I do wish I had stayed in the city. When I wanted to go anywhere, all I had to do was ring for Peter's, and he brought around the car.' The lad was getting into his great coat, and he said wheelingly, "'I feel like taking a hike today, sis. Try it once, just to please me, won't you? Be a good pal.' Geraldine hesitated. "'Well, just this once,' she said. Then, Alfred, happening to look down at her daintily shod feet, laughed gaily. "'But, my dear girl,' he exclaimed, "'you certainly couldn't walk through snowdrifts with those slipper things on. Trot along and put on the hiking shoes that Dad had brought for you, and I'll see if I can unearth some leggings.' "'But those shoes are so heavy,' Geraldine protested, "'and I'm sure I don't know where you could get leggings, whatever they are.' "'Never you mind, sis. You do as little Alfred asks this once. I'll be back in a jiffy.' True to his word, the lad reappeared as soon as the strong hiking shoes were on, and triumphantly he held aloft a pair of warm-knitted leggings. "'Alfred Morrison,' cried the horrified girl, "'do you expect me to wear those ugly things? "'Why, I'd be the laughing-stock of Dorchester "'if I appeared in thick woollen stockings like those.' "'But, sister mine, geographically speaking, "'Dorchester and Sunnyside are so far apart "'that your exclusive friends are not likely to see you to-day.' At last Geraldine stood arrayed in the first pair of heavy shoes and leggings she had ever worn. As they were walking down the sparkling highway, the boy asked, "'Who have you been writing to? Dad?' "'No, to Adeline Drexel. I had a letter from her this morning, and, oh, buddy, I forgot to tell you. Adeline writes that she has a first cousin living in this town. I am so thankful to find that, after all, there is at least one girl of my own set in this dreadful place. But what I would like to know is—' "'Why didn't she call upon me instead of those butter-turners and milkmaids?' Alfred finished for her. Geraldine, who had been carefully picking her way through a snowdrift, trying to step just where her brother did, happened to look up suddenly and saw the shoulders of the boy ahead shaking with silent laughter. Before she could ask the cause of this, sleigh-bells were heard back of them, and a merry voice called, "'Ho there, Alfred Morrison! Through stage for Sunnyside! Any passengers wishing to ride?' Jack Lee and Bob Angel were beaming down from the high seat of the delivery sleigh belonging to the father of the latter boy. Bob often assisted his father after school hours, sometimes acting as a clerk in the busy little grocery, or again doing the rural delivering. Geraldine was indignant. Ride with a grocer boy? Indeed not, she was thinking. Probably a brother to one of the milkmaids. 
She flushed angrily when she saw Alfred turn back and answer the salutation with a hearty, "'Hello there, boys. Sure thing. I'd like to ride. Would you, Geraldine?' The girl drew herself up haughtily as she said in a low tone, "'A Morrison ride in a delivery cart? Never!' Bob, not having heard a word of the conversation, stopped the horse, and Jack, leaping down from the high seat, snatched off his hat and acknowledged the introduction to Geraldine, with as much courtesy as a city boy would have done. And what was more, the girl's eyes, even though they were disdainful, quickly perceived that Jack was unusually good-looking. So, too, was the beaming face of the driver, who called pleasantly, "'Miss Morrison, please pardon me for not getting out, but my steed is restless to-day.' Our conveyance is not a fashionable one, I know, but if you will honour us we will gladly take you to your destination. Geraldine hardly knew how to reply. This boy seemed nice, but of course he belonged to the tradespeople, and, Bob was speaking again, why don't you let me drive you over to our house? The girls are having a sewing bee, I think they call it. Doris Drexel and all the rest of them are there. Geraldine looked up brightly. Thank you, she said. I would like to go. If the seven girls seated around the fireplace in the pleasant angel library had known that the haughty Geraldine was unconsciously about to return their call, they would have been filled with consternation for the fear that the joke they had played on her would be found out. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox. Org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 9 A Returned Call Fifteen minutes later, as the delivery sleigh turned into the drive of the unpretentious Angel home, Betty Bird, who sat near the window, declared, "'Here come the boys!' Then she uttered an exclamation of surprise. "'What is it, Betty?' the others asked, springing up and crowded about her. "'Girls!' Doris exclaimed tragically. "'Something terrible is just about to happen.' "'Alfred Morrison and his sister Geraldine are in the sleigh. "'What shall we do? "'Of course she will recognise us, "'and more than likely she will be mad as a hornet, "'and we can't blame her much if she is.' "'The girls were filled with consternation, "'but before they could form a plan, "'the front door opened and Bob's cheery voice called, "'Ho, sis, where are you?' "'So, of course, Bertha had to go into the hall, "'and he introduced her to the haughty young damsel.' Luckily, Geraldine could not see very clearly, having just come in from the dazzling sunlight. After laying aside her fur-lined coat, the unexpected guest was led into the library, where six of the anxious maidens stood about the fireplace. Peggy declared afterwards that she didn't see how Bertha ever got through the introductions so calmly. She was just as sure she would have called someone Matilda Jane Turnip. Of course, Geraldine greeted Doris with utmost warmth, and sat beside her as she exclaimed, "'Oh, Miss Drexel, I had a letter from your cousin Adelaine this morning, and she was so eager to have me meet you. We are next-door neighbours, and have been the best of friends for years. I wonder why I never met you before.' "'Probably because my mother is an invalid, and we have been in California and Florida so much of the time. Am I ever so glad to know a friend of Adelaine's? She is the dearest girl, isn't she?' The two were seated apart by themselves, and Doris dreaded the moment when their visitor should recognise them as the seven who had called upon her in the milkmaid garb the day before. Once she did look very steadily at Peggy, and Doris, noticing this, hurriedly asked some question about her city cousin, hoping to keep the guest's thoughts in safe channels. At last Alfred rose, saying, "'Well, sister, if we are to visit the post-office and then walk home before dark, we would better be going.' 
"'Wait just a moment,' Bertha urged. "'Bob has gone out to hitch up our two-seated sleigh. "'Oh, here he comes now.' "'A comfortable, roomy sleigh appeared, and Jack said, "'Miss Geraldine, may I accompany you? "'Alfred and Bob may have the driver's seat.' The girl smilingly consented, and then bade each of the maidens a gracious farewell. When the sleigh, with its jingling bells and prancing horses, was out of sight, the girls sank down on their chairs, and one and all uttered some exclamation. Then Mary Lee said, The question before the house is, did she recognize us? I don't see how she could help recognizing Rose, Peggy said to tease. She looks very much as she did as Jerusy. That pretty maiden took the teasing good-naturedly. Then tongues and needles flew, until half an hour later when the boys returned. They were laughing merrily when they entered the room and bent over the burning log to warm their hands. The girls looked up from their sewing, and Peggy asked eagerly, "'Tell us the worst. Did Geraldine recognize us?' "'Yes, she did,' Bob declared. She told Jack that she knew Peggy at once. She decided, however, that it had been a good lesson for her, and she wished Jack to thank you all for having taught her that people may live in the country and not be backwoodsy or rubes. "'Well, I'm glad she forgives us,' Bertha declared. Then, when the boys had again departed, she added, "'But now, to return to the subject we were discussing when we were interrupted. "'Peggy, have you and Doris found a mystery yet for the seventh sluice to unravel?' nary a mystery doris confessed but it isn't saturday yet you remember we were to have a week there might be some kind of mystery connected with the old wesley house out on the lake road if ever a place looked haunted that one surely does right oh my dear little betty but ghosts and mysteries are two different things some unhappy old man shot himself in that dismal farmhouse and nobody ever wanted to live there after that and so it has fallen to pieces but everybody knew the man, and just why he was so sad and discouraged. So there isn't any mystery at all. Where did the boys go? Bertha looked up suspiciously. Heavens, I hope they aren't anywhere around. They might overhear us talking about mysteries, and then our new name wouldn't be a secret any more. They drove out of the yard. I saw them, Betty, still near the window, remarked. Jack had a book, probably that one of Conan Doyle. Perhaps they're going to return it. Suddenly Bertha dropped her sewing, and her eyes were bright. "'Say, girls, we've wondered a million times where the boys hold their secret meetings, "'but never once did we even suspect that it might be in that dreadful old Wesley place. "'Bertha Angel, I believe you're right. "'No one would ever interrupt them there,' Peg shuddered. "'And what better meeting place for a boys' detective club "'than an old ruin haunted by a ghost that had committed suicide?' Doris commented. "'Well,' Mary sighed, "'we're not likely to find out, since our dear parents will not permit us to prowl around at night unless the boys are along to protect us.' Then Peggy had an idea. "'Girls,' she exclaimed, "'we ought to have some kind of party for Geraldine and Alfred. Let's have a moonlight skating party and a sleigh ride combined, and when we're out of the way, let's suggest visiting the old ruin. If the boys refuse, we will know that they don't want us to see what they have in there.' If they agree to the plan, then we will know it is not where they hold their secret meetings. Bright idea. That will be a jolly lark. Let's hope the haughty Geraldine knows how to skate. Shh! Here come the boys to take us home. We mustn't let them suspect our deep-laid plans. We're some sleuths, all right, I'll say. When the two boys entered the room, they found the girls, except the hostess, warmly wrapped and ready to be taken to their homes. Isn't the sunset going to be wonderful this evening? Mary, in the open door, called over her shoulder, then to the boys, "'When is our next full moon? We girls thought we'd have our annual skating and sleigh-ride party then, and invite the newcomers.' 
"'Great!' cried Jack. "'It ought to be soon. What say, Bob?' "'Sure thing,' that ruddy-cheeked lad agreed. Then, to the girl he was assisting into the sleigh, he said in a low voice, "'Rosie, may I have the first gate, and the last, and all in between?' "'No whispering aloud,' Mary warned, as they climbed in, and the girls sitting two and three deep. The blizzard had disappeared as completely as though it had never been, but the high snowbanks that lined the road and reached to the window-sills of the houses remained to testify that it had been some storm, as Bob said. "'Well, we shall have it to thank for a week of good times instead of school,' Mary declared. "'I hope Miss Preen and Professor Lowsley enjoyed being snowed in together.' Much laughter greeted this remark, but Gertrude said rebukingly, "'I think it's shy be of us to make fun of those two. Of course they are sort of queer-looking outside, but in their hearts and souls they may be just like the rest of us. Trudy, dear, it wouldn't take a detective to know that you're a minister's daughter, Mary remarked, and then, as the sleigh was stopping in front of her home, she added, Now, everybody, decide what to take to the skating party. We'll find out about the moon and make our final plans tomorrow. All of you come over to my house. Tra-la, good night. End of chapter 9 Chapter Ten of the Seventh Sleuths Club. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter Ten. Wanted. A housekeeper. Meanwhile, Colonel Wainwright was facing a new problem. While living alone, he had needed very little waiting on. A faithful Chinese cook had provided his meals, and the wife of his hired man had come in daily from their quarters over the stables to clean the house. But the O'Haras had decided to return to Ireland. Geraldine, of course, was absolutely helpless, and the Colonel decided that what he needed was a refined and somewhat elderly housekeeper, one who would be a good influence in the home. Just where to find such a person he could not think at first, but he happened to recall his old friend Mrs. Thompson, who had transformed her fine house on Hickory Lane, not far from the girls' seminary, into a home for old ladies. It wasn't a charitable plan, exactly. It was a home for homeless old ladies, of some means whose last days would be made far happier than they could be elsewhere. Mrs. Thompson herself retained a large front room overlooking the beautiful grounds, and spent her summers there. Winters she lived either in Europe or with her son in New York but only that day he had seen in the paper that for some reason Mrs. Thompson was spending a few weeks at her country home, and the courtly old gentleman decided to visit her and ask her advice about how best to solve the problem with which he was confronted. Half an hour later he was walking under the leafless hickory trees that formed a veritable grove surrounding a very large turreted wooden house, one of the oldest in the village. A pleasant-faced little old woman answered his ring, ushering him into the small reception room, and went to summon Mrs. Thompson. He had not long to wait, for his elderly friend, dressed in a simple black silk, as she had been all through the years since her husband had died, soon appeared and greeted him graciously. After explaining that her return had been because of a need for a quiet and simple affair than she could really obtain easily in her son's New York home, the old gentleman explained his mission— telling how he had unexpectedly acquired a family, and so had need of a housekeeper. Before his story was finished, he knew by the brightening expression in the fine face of the old lady that she had someone in mind to suggest. Nor was he wrong. "'I believe Mrs. Gray is just the one for you,' she told him. 
She admitted you just now. Then, before Mr. Wainwright could reply, Mrs. Thompson continued, Mrs. Gray came to us recently, during my absence. I know nothing at all of her past life. We ask no questions here. It is, as you know, merely a home, boarding house, for gentlewomen. I asked Mrs. Gray this morning if she were happy with us, and she said, with a wistful expression on that unusually sweet face of hers, that she was afraid she would never be entirely contented without a home to keep. And she asked me if she might go down into the kitchen now and then, and stir up a pudding or something. Now my theory is that she is a born housekeeper, and just the one you need. Colonel Wainwright agreed, and the little old lady who longed to putter about in a kitchen was called, and the proposition was made to her. The other two knew by the brightening of her softly wrinkled face that she was delighted to accept. The colonel had told about the two Morrison children, as he called them, who had come to spend the winter with him, and by the tender light that glowed in her eyes he was assured that she loved young people and would have for them an understanding sympathy. Mrs. Gray, he said, when the arrangements had been completed, there is about you a haunting suggestion of someone whom I once knew. Ever since you admitted me an hour ago, I have been trying to think who it is that you resemble, but I have given it up. The little old lady smiled pleasantly as she replied, It does seem that everywhere I go, folks think I look like somebody they've known. Well, that's about all there is to it, the old man acknowledged. I have had the same thing happen to me. Judge Crow, up in Dorchester, and I are supposed to be doubles. Then, holding out his hand, first to one and then the other of the old ladies, he expresses deep gratitude to them both, ending with a promise to send for Mrs. Gray and her baggage that very afternoon. And so it happened that on the third day after the arrival of the young people, another member was added to their household. Colonel Wainwright had welcomed the little old lady, and had at once introduced her to Geraldine and Alfred. Then he had walked to town, leaving them to their own devices. It was quite evident that Geraldine's good humour of the day before had departed, for she acknowledged the introduction with a barely perceptible nod and had risen at once to go to her own room. Never before had she been introduced to a housekeeper, as though she was one of her own class. Colonel Wainwright was certainly old-fashioned. Servants were servants, she considered, whatever they were called. Alfred, who had promised to go skating with Jack and Bob, had welcomed the old lady in the friendliest manner, and she knew at once that she was going to love the boy, but the girl? That was quite a different matter. The colonel had shown the housekeeper to her pleasant room overlooking the orchard, when her trunk and bags had been taken in there. He had also introduced her to Ching Li, the plump, smiling Chinaman in the kitchen. When she was quite alone, the old lady stood by a window in her room, gazing out at a sparkling, snow-covered scene, and her eyes were misty. How happy she had been when the colonel had told her she was to make a home, a real home, for a boy and girl. One of the unfulfilled desires of her life was to have had grandchildren. She blinked a bit, then wiped her eyes with a handkerchief and smiled at the scene before her. Well, she comforted herself by thinking, I'll pretend these two are my grandchildren, and I'll treat them just as lovingly as though they really were, and I'll begin that game right now. Putting a clean white apron over her soft grey dress, she went down the wide upper hall towards the front room, which was Geraldine's. Meanwhile, that rebellious girl was unpacking her trunk in a manner which showed that it was a most distasteful task. Never before had she lifted her fingers to wait on herself. Susan, her maid, had always done everything for her. She had asked her father to permit her to bring Susan to Sunnyside with her, 
but he had said that he could not ask his old friend to take three people into his home. As she thought of this injustice, her anger mounted higher and higher, and she took things from her trunk and actually threw them over the bed, chairs, and lounge. Every conceivable spot was littered when there came a tap on the door. "'Come in,' the girl said suddenly, supposing that it was her brother whom wished to speak to her. Instead, a smiling little old lady opened the door. "'Why, Geraldine, child,' she said kindly, "'you are busy, aren't you? Unpacking and hanging things up is quite an undertaking, but I think folks like to do it themselves. Then they know where things were put.' The girl's face reddened with very evident displeasure. "'Well, I don't like it,' she said coldly, "'and I don't see why I should have to do it. "'I've always had a maid to wait on me, "'and I've simply got to have one. "'Now that you've come, "'I suppose you'll make my bed and keep my room in order.' The old lady had had a talk with the colonel about this very matter, and he had definitely said that waiting on the girl was not one of her duties. Explaining that Mr. Morrison had especially requested that she learn how to care for herself, very quietly, Mrs. Gray replied, "'No, little girl, that is not one of my duties.' Then, as the front door bell was ringing, the housekeeper went to answer it. Geraldine, standing among the confusion and litter, watched the retreat with flashing eyes. "'Little girl, indeed! Our housekeeper always addressed me as Miss Geraldine. Country ways and country servants are certainly hard to understand.' Her torrent of angry thoughts was interrupted by a sweet voice calling, "'Geraldine, two girls are coming up to see you.' Geraldine looked around the room wildly, but before she had time to decide what she could do to prevent the girls from entering, they were standing in the open door. "'Oh, good morning, Miss Drexel and Miss Lee,' the unwilling hostess exclaimed, with a quickly assumed graciousness which had been acquired at the young lady's select seminary. "'Wait until I remove a few dresses from the chairs, and I will ask you to be seated.' Doris and Mary exchanged puzzled glances. They felt Geraldine's true attitude of mind, and the former said, "'Oh, Miss Morrison, we really ought not to have made so early a morning call, but we have decided to go to the Drexel Lodge on Little Bear Lake tomorrow, and there are so many things to talk about. We did try to telephone, but the line is out of order, but first do let us help you put your things away.' To Geraldine's amazement the two girls removed their wraps, laughing and chatting the while in a most sociable fashion. "'I'm going to suggest that we drop formality,' Mary said, "'and call each other by our first names. "'And now, Geraldine, I just know that you are ever so tired with unpacking, "'so you sit here and tell us where you want these dresses hung, "'and presto, we'll have them up in a twinkling.' "'But I cannot permit you girls to wait upon me,' the hostess protested. "'Why not?' Doris inquired. "'My mother said that the most beautiful thing that we can do "'is loving service for another.' "'Oh, what a darling dress this is! It glows like jewels, doesn't it, Mary?' The city girl was rather pleased to be showing off her elaborate wardrobe to these village girls, who were quite evidently impressed. "'Oh, that's just one of my party gowns,' she said indifferently. "'I have several.' Then she confessed, "'I honestly don't know how to go about hanging them up. I have just stepped out of my clothes, and Susan, my maid, has put them away.' "'My, how I would hate to have anyone tagging me around all the time like that!' Mary exclaimed, and not too tactfully, it would get on my nerves. Geraldine drew herself up haughtily and bit her lip to keep from replying. Her two guests, with many exclamations of admiration for the dresses, hung them up in the long closet, and then, when the task was finished, Mary announced, Now I will show you my latest accomplishment, of which I am real proud. 
Her chum laughed as she explained, "'You see, Geraldine, my mother has a companion, who is also a trained nurse, and last week she taught Mary how to make a bed in hospital fashion, and the next day, when I went over to the Lees, Mary had made and unmade her bed seven times, trying to get it perfect.' "'There's quite a knack to it,' that maiden smilingly declared, as she stretched, smoothed, and tucked in the sheets and blankets. Then she stood back proudly and surveyed her accomplishment. She said, "'Mother thinks my bed-making is a work of art.' Geraldine wanted to say that she did not consider menial labour of any kind an art, but she refrained from making the comment. Mary sank down in an easy chair by the fireplace, and looked around with a radiant smile. "'Everything was cleared away like magic, wasn't it?' she said sociably. But then she added philosophically, "'If one dreads a thing, it makes the doing of it doubly hard. But when one pretends that it's going to be great fun, it gets done much more quickly. Don't you think so, Geraldine?' Poor Geraldine's head was in a whirl. Somehow she could not adjust herself to the view of things held by these country girls. The Colonel had told her that Mr. Lee was the wealthiest man in the countryside, and, of course, she knew the financial and social standing of the Drexel family, and yet these girls had been taught that it was a privilege to render loving service, and that bed-making was an art. "'Now we must tell you all of our grand and glorious plans for tomorrow's lark,' Doris began as she drew up her chair cosily. Then they chatted about the sleigh-ride and the skating party, and when, at last, the little clock on the mantel chimed the hour of twelve, Mary sprang up and looked out the window. "'Here comes the boys,' she said. "'I made them promise that they would call for us at noon. They have been down to the lake to clean off a space on the ice for our skating party.' "'I'm so glad, Geraldine, that you like to skate,' Doris exclaimed as she slipped on her fur coat. "'You'll want to wear your heaviest shoes and leggings on the sleigh-ride party, and your oldest, warmest clothes.' "'You don't need to bring anything towards the picnic part. "'You and Alfred are to be our guests of honour tomorrow. "'Good-bye.' "'That night the Colonel, finding Geraldine standing alone in front of the fireplace in the living-room, "'slipped a fatherly arm about her, saying, "'Little girl, I know how hard it is going to be for you to get used to our country ways, "'and I was thinking that perhaps you would like to go to Dorchester with me tomorrow "'and spend the day with your friends.' "'Oh, but I couldn't, Uncle Colonel,' was the unexpected reply, brightly given. "'The girls and boys in Sunnyside are giving a welcoming party for Alfred and me. "'It's a sleigh-ride out on the lake road to the Drexel Lodge, "'and there is to be skating, and a ride home in the moonlight. "'I never was so interested in anything before in all my life.' "'That's good news,' the Colonel replied, deeply touched because the girl had, "'almost unconsciously, used the name which he had taught her when she was very small.' "'Well, some other time you may go with me to the city. "'I go there often to attend to business matters.' "'That night, after the young people had retired to their rooms, "'the Colonel and Mrs. Gray exchanged confidences, "'and each felt hopeful that the unfortunate motherless girl "'was soon to have a change of heart.'" End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 11 A Rebellious Boy The next morning, when Colonel Wainwright entered the cheery, sun-flooded breakfast-room, he saw a slender girl standing by the window looking out at the glistening white orchard. 
She turned with a truly radiant face. "'Oh, Colonel!' she exclaimed. "'Isn't it the most wonderful sparkling day? "'I will have to confess that I have never seen anything so beautiful in the city, "'for there, even in the parks, the snow becomes sooty almost as soon as it has fallen.' The elderly gentleman was pleased indeed, and he said heartily, "'Well, little lady, I am glad that there is at least one thing that you like in our country village. "'Aha! Here is Alfred. Good morning, lad. "'I judge by your ruddy face that you have already been out of doors.' "'Indeed I have,' the boy replied, as they took their places at the table. "'I saw a chap shoveling, and so I went out to help him. "'Who is he, Colonel? Sort of a surly boy, I thought. "'He only grunted when I asked if he didn't think the snow was great.' "'He is Danny O'Neill,' the old gentleman replied. "'His father is a tenant on one of my farms, "'and he has a great deal of trouble with the boy, he tells me. "'Danny is seventeen, and has sort of taken the bit in his mouth. "'He doesn't want to go to school, nor help his father on the farm.' Mr. O'Neill came to me yesterday and asked my advice about sending Danny to a reform school. I advised him not to do so unless he feared that the boy might do something really criminal. Then I suggested that he send the lad over here to take the place of my man Patrick, who has gone to Ireland to visit his old parents. I thought, perhaps, if Danny were earning good wages that might straighten him out. I wish you would talk with him, Alfred. I'm sure it would do him good. I will, sir, the boy replied. There must be some reason that doesn't show on the surface for Danny O'Neill's rebelliousness. Perhaps his father doesn't understand him. Mrs. Gray smiled over the silver coffee urn at the boy and nodded encouragement. That often leads to a lot of trouble and unhappiness, as I have reason to know, she replied. An hour later, true to his promise, Alfred tried to make friends with Danny O'Neill. Having procured another wooden shovel from the tool shed, he was tossing snow from the front walk which had not been entirely cleaned off since the blizzard. He did not wish his efforts to become acquainted with Danny to seem too pointed, and so he had taken his way to make them appear natural, but the other boy was taciturn, giving no information about himself or his plans, answering all direct questions with monosyllables. Discouraged, Alfred was about to give up when he heard the jolly jingling of sleigh bells, and, to his surprise, he saw a two-seater cutter, drawn by a familiar big dapple mare and driven by Bob, rose at his side, while Doris and Jack were on the back seat. They sang out merry greetings as they approached and came to a halt near where the two boys were working. Jack leapt out, and after a wave of his hand toward the Morrison boy, he turned to the other with, "'Hello, old Dan, how are you? I haven't laid eyes on you in twenty moons.' "'Why don't you ever come around?' "'Adding by the way of explanation to Alfred. "'Danny O'Neill and I were champion snowballers when we were kids. "'I always chose him to be on my side when I was captain of the brick school gang. "'Then to the still sullen-looking boy who kept on shoveling. "'I haven't seen a thing of you since you stopped going to school. "'You made a mistake to drop out, Dan.' "'Fearing that he was embarrassing the still silent boy, "'Jack turned to explain their early visit. "'We four are a committee on arrangement.' "'Stopped by to tell you and your sister to be ready along about two. "'We'll call for you.' "'Doris, seeing Geraldine in the doorway, "'skipped up the front steps for a few words, "'and on her return, seeing that Danny was alone, "'she stopped and spoke to him in a low voice. "'Danny O'Neill,' she said, "'I've often wished I could see you to tell you "'how my heart aches for you since your mother died. "'Every week when I drove out to your little farm "'to get fresh eggs for my mother, "'Mrs O'Neill was so cheerful and brave.' "'although we know now that she must have been suffering for a long time. "'She was always telling me that her one desire was to save enough money "'to send you up to Dorchester Art School. "'She showed me some things you drew, Danny. "'I'm sure you have talent. "'I hope you'll carry out her wishes. "'Won't you try, Danny, for her sake?' 
For a moment the boy seemed to find it hard to speak. Then he said, in a gruff tone, with emotion, "'If I can get hold of any money, I will. It's all that's left, now Ma's gone.' "'But, Dan, you're working for the Colonel. You can save that money, can't you?' "'Not much I can't. The old man gets it paid to him. That's how much I'll get,' his voice expressed bitterness and hatred. Rose was calling, and so, with a pitying expression in her eyes, Doris said, "'Good-bye, Danny,' and skipped away. After they were gone, Alfred tried once more to be friendly, but found the surly lad even less inclined to talk than before, and so he went indoors to prepare for the afternoon frolic. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter 12 A Sleigh Ride Party. Promptly at two, Geraldine and Alfred, well bundled in furs, were waiting in the hall when a joyous shouting, ringing of bells, and blowing of horns announced that the merry sleigh ride party was coming up the drive. Alfred threw open the door and gave an answering halloo, then, turning, he assisted Geraldine down the icy steps. I wonder where Danny O'Neill is, the Colonel exclaimed. I told him to put ashes on the icy places, but he has not done so. The girls graciously welcomed Geraldine and made room for her on the deep, blanket-covered straw between Doris and Mary. This is for you to blow upon, the former maiden said, producing from her coat pocket a small tasselled horn. For one moment Geraldine hesitated. Then, as the two big white horses raced along the snowy roads with bells jingling, she soon caught the spirit of merriment and found herself tooting upon a horn as gaily as the rest of them. Never before had she had such a jolly time, and she was actually feeling a bit sorry for the city girls who had never been on a straw ride. The sun was bright, and, long before they reached their destination, they could see the ice glistening on Little Bear Lake. As they drew up at the inn to rest the horses a moment before turning up the seldom-travelled East Lake Road, Mr. Wiggin, who lived in that lonely spot all the year round, with only now and then an occasional guest for a weekend, came out to greet them. Usually his face beamed when he saw these young people, but today he looked greatly troubled. "'What's up, Mr. Wiggin?' Bob drew rein to inquire. "'You look as though you've seen a ghost.' "'Well, I come out to warn you, young people, you'd better turn back. Old man Bartlett, who lives a mile up the wood road, was robbed an hour ago. He'd been into town to get five hundred dollars he had in the bank, got a queer notion that the bank was going to pieces. He had the money in an old bag. Someone must have seen him getting it out of the bank and followed him.' Anyway, when he reached the wood road, he was held up and robbed. Well, with all the unbroken snow there is about here, it will be easy enough to catch the thief, Bob said. You're wrong there, Mr. Wiggin replied. Several teams have been along the lake road since the blizzard, and he could walk in the ruts. Was poor old Mr. Bartlett hurt? Gertrude asked anxiously. No, not at all. He was blindfolded and tied to a tree, but he worked himself loose before long, but the robber was gone. The old man came right down here and we telephoned to the sheriff. He and his men will be along most any minute now. There may be some shooting, so I would advise you boys to take the girls right back to town. Jack looked nervously at Mary, who was vigorously shaking her head. We aren't afraid, are we, girls? Not with all these boys along to protect us, Peg declared. Then Doris explained. We're only going as far as our cabin, Mr. Wiggin. That's not more than a mile from here. We'll be all right. That crook is probably headed to Dorchester by this time, one of the boys put in. We don't want to miss our fun for him. The innkeeper watched the sleigh-load of young people until they had disappeared over a rise on the East Lake Road. Then he shook his head solemnly and, 
Having entered the inn, he said to his wife, "'That's what I call a foolhardy risk. It might be all right for the young fellows if they were alone, but to take a parcel of girls into nobody knows what. I call it downright foolishness, and maybe worse.' why if they cornered that highwayman he would shoot and of course there's no telling who he would hit well not being their guardian i couldn't prevent their going and so they'll have to take their chance meanwhile the two big white horses were slowly ploughing their way along the east side of the lake in some spots the road was quite bare and where the wind had swept across the fields but in other places the horses floundered through deep snow-drifts the road which led close to the lake was hilly and winding and as it neared the cabin, it entered a dense wood of snow-covered pines. "'Girls, why don't you blow on your horns?' Bob called as he looked back. "'There's nothing to be afraid of. That highwayman would make straight for Dorchester, where he could lose himself in the crowd.' Suddenly, Mary called out excitedly, "'Bob, stop a minute. Look there. That highwayman must have been riding on a horse. If it was, this is where he turned and cut through the pine woods to the old Dorchester road.' Jack and several other boys leaped over the side of the sleigh and followed the tracks for some distance through the woods, where there was little snow on the ground. "'Say, boys, I believe Mary's got the right idea,' Jack said as he climbed back to his former place next to Geraldine. "'Glad we saw those tracks,' Alfred put in. "'Now we know for sure the highwayman won't be lurking around the Drexel cabin.' "'Sure thing. Let's proceed to forget about him and have a good time,' Bob called in his cheerful way. "'Blow on your horns, girls. Make this silent pine wood ring.' Ooh, isn't it silent, though, and dark, too. Hurry up, Bob, we'll blow hard enough when we get out into the sunshine, Betty Bird said as she huddled close to Mary. Peggy took occasion to say to Doris in a low aside that the boys of the CDC probably thought that they now had a mystery to solve, but they wanted the girls to think that they weren't interested. That's what I thought, was the whispered reply. Wouldn't it be great if we solved the mystery first? Say, cut out the secret stuff, one boy across them called. Then, taking his companion's horn, he blew a merry blast. The others did likewise, and so noisily they emerged into the sunshine. But some of the girls glanced back at the silent, sombre woods, as though fearing that the robber had been there all of the time. Just in front of them, and built close to the lake, was a picturesque lob cabin. "'Hooray for the Drexel Lodge!' someone called. "'You girls stay in the sleigh,' Bob said, "'while we boys see if the robber is hiding in the cabin.' Five minutes later the lads reappeared. "'He certainly isn't there,' Jack declared. The heavy wooden doors and blinds are all padlocked just as they were left last fall, and there is no other way of entering, so let's forget the highwayman and have a good time we planned. Jack is right, Bertha said, as she leapt from the sleigh. Doris, you have the key. Let's open the doors while the boys get wood from the shed. Isn't the ice just great? I can hardly wait to get my skates on. Can you, Geraldine? The young people were convinced that the highwayman was not in their neighbourhood, and, with fear gone, they resumed their merry-making the blinds were opened letting in a flood of sunlight a big dry log was soon burning on the wide hearth and the fire was started in the kitchen stove now girls doris announced i want you all to go skating with the boys while i prepare our supper why won't you be afraid to stay here alone betty bird the timorous inquired i wouldn't do it for worlds no i'm not afraid doris replied the house was locked so why should i be sure thing you're safe enough bob declared but if you do get frightened blow on your horn Ten minutes later, Doris was alone, or at least she thought she was alone in the log cabin. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton 
Chapter Thirteen: A Bag of Gold. Doris sang softly to herself as she busily unpacked the lunch baskets and spread the long table in the living room. The tea kettle was soon humming on the stove, and the bacon was sizzling in the frying pan. We'll have an early supper, she was thinking, and I'm going to suggest that we start home early too. Our parents will have heard about the hold-up, and they'll be terribly worried. I do hope Mother, ill as she is, won't hear of it. But of course she won't. That's the advantage of having a trained nurse with her all the time. Then she glanced at her skates lying near the door. I suppose they're disappointed not to get out on the ice. Well, so am I. But my ankle doesn't feel as strong as I'd hoped it would. I turned it a little getting into the sleigh, and I don't want to sprain it again as I did last winter. She opened a box which Bertha had brought. Yum, yum, she said aloud. What delicious tarts! Then she counted them. Two apiece. I'm glad. They're big ones. Carrying them into the living room, she placed them around on the long table. Then, stopping to sniff, she darted back into the kitchen to turn the strips of sizzling bacon. A few minutes later, she returned to the living room with a huge plate of sandwiches. Suddenly, she stood still and stared at the door of a small closet. She thought she had seen it move just ever so slightly. She knew that it had been locked, for Bob tried it just before he went out to skate. The crack widened, and Doris saw eyes peeping out at her. Wildly, she screamed, but the windows were closed, and no one heard. She started to run when a familiar voice called, "Doris, don't be frightened. I won't hurt you. It's Danny O'Neil." The girl turned in amazement towards the boy to whom she had been talking not six hours before. "Danny," the girl gasped, "what are you doing here?" The boy looked around wildly. "I." I was the one who robbed old Mr. Bartlett," he said rapidly. "I didn't set out to do it, Doris. Honest, I didn't. I was just running away from home. Pa has been so hard on me ever since Ma died, and so I thought I'd clear out of it all. But I didn't have any money. And then this morning, when you told me how Ma wanted me to get money and go to art school, well, I don't know, Doris, what did happen to my brain? But I was just crazy mad to get money and get away from that man who calls himself my father. After you left, I started walking towards town. I didn't even know what I was doing until I got to the bank. Then I saw old man Bartlett stuffing all that money in his handbag, and I followed him, hiding behind trees, till he got to the wood road. Then I don't know what I did—knocked him over, I guess. There was a long rope, one end tied to a tree, and I wound it about him. Then I took his bag and ran. But how did you get in here, Danny? The doors and windows were all locked, and we didn't see any tracks. I know. I stepped on the places where the snow was blown away, and I climbed onto the roof and came down the chimney. Then I went in that closet and locked the door on the inside. But Doris, I don't want the money. All these long hours there in the dark, I've been seeing Mum's face looking at me so reproachful, and she kept saying, "Danny boy, you promised me you'd go straight. If she'd lived, Doris, I'd have been different. But isn't home without her." The lad drew his coat sleeve over his eyes. Then he said gloomily, "The sheriff will be hunting for me, and they'll put me in jail. Anyhow, here's the money. Take it back to old man Bartlett and tell him I didn't really mean to rob him." I just did it sudden like, without thinking. There were tears in the eyes of the girl, and she held out her hand. Danny, she said, I know how lonely you've been without your mother, and I'll help you. Quick, hide! Someone is coming. Danny darted back and locked himself in the closet. Doris hid the bag of gold and hurried towards the front door. Someone was pounding, and she was sure it was the sheriff. When Doris opened the heavy wooden door, she found that her surmise had been correct. Mister Ross, the sheriff, stood without. And waiting near were several other men on horseback. Oh, Miss Drexel, it's you, isn't it? The sheriff was evidently much surprised. We saw smoke coming from the chimney and believed that we had cornered our highwayman. Thought he might be hiding here. Of course, it would be a daring thing to make a fire in a deserted cabin, 
but these criminals are a bold, hardened lot. Who else is with you, Miss Drexel? I guess I'll step inside, if you don't mind. No use holding the door open and letting all the heat out. The sheriff entered and closed the door. Then he went to the fireplace and held his hands over the blaze. Doris's heart was filled with a new fear. What if Danny should make a sound of some sort and betray his hiding place? Hurriedly she sat. All of our crowd is here, Mr. Ross. There are seven boys and as many girls, but the rest of them are out on the ice skating. I remained at the cabin to prepare our supper. The sheriff straightened and leaned his back against the closet door as he said, Miss Drexel, because of this robbery I feel it my duty to tell you and your friends that you would be better to return to town as soon as you have had your lunch. It gets dark early these wintry days and there's no telling what might happen. Thank you, Mr. Ross, Doris said, and I will tell the boys when they come in. When the sheriff was gone, the girl closed and bolted the front door. Then she tapped on the closet, saying softly, Come out, Danny. I have a plan to suggest. Bob and the rest of them may be in at any minute. Then, when the lad appeared, she added, I want you to take my skates, fling them over your shoulder, and go boldly out of the front door and up the lake road. Anyone seeing you leave here will think you are one of our party. Whistle and stride along as though you were out for fun. Half a mile above, as you know, the lake is narrow. Skate across and go back to your work at Colonel Wainwright's. But before you go, Danny, promise me that from now on you'll be the kind of boy your mother wanted you to be. The lad held out his hand with tears falling unheeded. He said huskily, I give you my word, Doris. You have been my good angel and saved me from nobody knows what. Then he shouldered the skates and started down the snowy road with long strides, whistling fearlessly. A load had been lifted from his heart, and he was sure that his mother had forgiven him. Doris watched him until he disappeared beyond a bend in the road, and then she breathed a sigh of relief. She heard a stamping without, and the laughing young people swarmed into the kitchen. "'Ho, oh, Doris, who was the chap that just went by?' Bob called, but before the girl could reply, something else happened to attract their attention. Bertha, in the kitchen, was crying in dismay. "'Where is the cook? What has she been doing?' We'll have to discharge her, I'm thinking. The bacon is burned to a cinder. Doris, thankfully indeed for this timely interruption, ran into the kitchen and declared remorsefully, Oh, it isn't too bad, and I suppose you're all as hungry as bears, but luckily I brought an extra supply. Throw that out, Bertha, please, and I'll get some more. Then, as she searched in her basket, she added hurriedly, I suppose I left it burn while the sheriff was here. The sheriff was the surprised chorus. Why, what did he want? Jack asked. He didn't suppose that we had the highwayman here as one of our guests, did he? Doris purposely did not look at any of them as she put the strips of bacon into the pan which Bertha had prepared. Oh, Sheriff Ross and his men were just passing by, she said with an effort at indifference, and so he thought he would stop and ask us if we had any idea where the bold robber might be. He is wasting his time, Bob declared. I am positive that Dorchester holds this man by this time. Peggy and Dick Jensen entered the kitchen at this moment, and the girl exclaimed, "'Oh, Doris, I've had bad luck. I broke one of my straps, but since you aren't going to skate today, may I take one of yours?' What could Doris say? How could she explain the absence of her skates? She was busy at the stove, and she had pretended that she had not heard. But before the other girl could repeat her question, Bob called, "'Here's one of you, Peg. I always carry an extra strap in my pocket.' Doris again breathed with a sigh of relief, but it was a short one. For a second later, she thought of something which set her heart throbbing wildly. The bag of gold! She had hidden it under a cushion on one of the chairs when the sheriff was knocking. The seven boys were now in the living room, and she heard Bob teasingly say, Jack, you're the oldest. Sit down in this grandfather's chair and see what you're coming to. That old-fashioned armchair was the very one where the bag of gold was hidden. In another moment, Jack would be sitting on it. 
"'Here, Bertha,' Doris called wildly. "'Please turn the bacon. I must sit down for a moment. I feel faint.' Rushing into the living room, the girl sank into the grandfather's chair, just as Jack was about to occupy it. "'Why, Doris,' Dick exclaimed, "'you look as white as a sheet. Are you ill?' "'I guess it must have been the heat from the stove, or—or or something,' was the vague reply. Doris was thinking wildly. How could she get the money from beneath the chair cushion, with thirteen boys and girls bringing her water and watching her every move with troubled solicitude? The skating party, which had started out so merry, seemed destined to be a succession of troubled events. The boys and girls, gazing anxiously at the pale face of their friend, had not the slightest suspicion of the real facts, supposing only that Doris was suddenly faint. "'Perhaps it is caused by the wrench that you gave your ankle this morning,' Bertha said, then added self-rebukingly. "'I had completely forgotten it, Doris, or I would not have permitted you to stand for the past hour and prepare our supper.' The object of their solicitation, believing that for the time being the gold was safe, smiled up at them as she exclaimed brightly, "'Oh, I'm just lots better now. Please, all of you, sit down and eat your lunch, or the bacon will be cold instead of burnt. I'll just sit here and watch you.' "'Why, yes, thank you, Bob. I would like a cup of cocoa,' she added to the lad who offered to bring it. While Doris was slowly sipping the hot drink, she closely watched the others as they sat about the table and began to pass the tempting viands. When she believed that no one was observing her, she slipped a hand down under the cushion of the chair and grabbed the bag of gold. Then, hiding it under her apron, she arose to carry her cup to the kitchen. Bob sprang to assist her, but Doris laughingly waved him back. "'I'm as good as new, Bobby,' she said. "'I'll be right back, so save me some food.' Upon reaching the kitchen, she looked around hastily to see where she could again hide the money. A drawer being partly open, she thrust the bag to a far corner, and, with a sigh of relief, she went into the living room, and sank down on the part of the long bench which had been reserved for her. Bob looked at her curiously. It seemed strange to him that after a fainting spell one could suddenly be so ravenously hungry, but he said nothing and tried with his usual witty nonsense to make the meal a merry one. It was just as they were rising from the table that Bob saw something that caused him to stare in amazement. Luckily, no one noticed him as the girls were good-naturedly disputing about the matter of dishwashing, and the boys were donning their great copes and caps to prepare to return to the ice. What Bob saw was the door of the closet standing ajar, and well he knew that when they had first arrived the door had not only been locked, but the key had been nowhere in evidence. What could it mean? he wondered, and again he glanced curiously at Doris. Then he said with assumed gaiety, "'Girls, stop squabbling and get into your things and go skating with the boys.' I'll remain in the cabin to help Doris repack the baskets. Since she cannot skate, I'll stay and be her brave and bold protector. When they were alone, the lad turned to the girl, whom he had known since her baby days, and said kindly, Now, Doris, tell me what is troubling you. What has happened? End of chapter 13 Chapter 14 of the Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter 14. Two Conspirators. Doris, knowing that she could trust Bob, made him promise eternal secrecy, and then she told him the whole story, withholding only the name of the highwayman. The lad was indeed surprised at this sudden turn of affairs, and he said at once, "'You don't need to tell me who it is, Doris. I know it was Tom Duffy, who was expelled from High last week, and he said he was going to skip town.' Doris wondered if she ought to deny this, but desiring to shield Danny, she said nothing at the time. Bringing forth a bag of gold, she gave it to the boy. 
He concealed it in the deep pocket of his heavy overcoat. Then he said, "'Now, Doris, you just leave it to me. I'll find some way to return this to the old man tonight, so that he may be relieved of his worrying. I'll wait for a hunch.' Then, as the work of tidying the kitchen was finished, Bob exclaimed, "'Now bundle up, Doris. I'll draw you on the sled while I skate. We can't let you miss all of the fun.' They were greeted with jolly shouts when they appeared, and Dick Jensen slid up to them, stopping only to do a double figure of eight, in which accomplishment he excelled. Then, taking the rope of the sled from Bob's warmly gloved hand, he said, "'I'll be Doris's pony. I'm sure she would rather have me, and, if I'm not mistaken, you'll find Rose waiting for you beyond the point.' Bob's face lighted. It was understood among these young people that some day, when they were older, Rose and Bob would be engaged, and since it was the only real romance in their midst, they all took a delighted interest in it. For an hour the gleaming ice was the picture of a merry wild winter frolic, but as soon as the sun began rapidly to descend to the horizon, Bob took Rose's horn and blew thereon a long clear blast, while the maiden at his side, with cheeks as glowing as her ruddy name flower, beckoned the skaters shorewards. "'Time to be going,' Bob called as they flocked in. "'The sky is so cloudy the moon won't be able to light us home, "'so we'll try to make it before dark.' "'Half an hour later the cabin had been securely locked "'and the sleigh filled with merrymakers, "'and the horses eager to be away after their long rest "'in the shelter of a shed. "'It was nearly dark when the inn was reached. "'Mr. Wiggin appeared in the door to exclaim, "'Well, I'm mighty glad to see you young folks headed for town. "'My wife's been worrying the whole afternoon "'knowing that highwayman was still at large.' "'The sheriff and his men found some tracks "'just back of the inn leading toward the pine wood. "'Mary put in excitedly. "'Oh, Mr. Wiggin, if that robber was riding a horse, "'we know where he turned towards the old Dorchester Road.' "'But the innkeeper shook his head. "'No, he was afoot.' The old man Bartlett said, Hal Spinney from the milk farm went by a spell earlier on horseback. How is Mr. Bartlett now? Gertrude asked solicitously. Well, he's pretty much all in, Mr. Wiggin replied sympathetically. Then, jerking his thumb over his shoulder, he said in a low voice, as though not wishing to be heard, My wife wouldn't hear to his going back to his shack up in the woods, so she's got him here in by the fire. He's pretty hard hit, as you can guess, that five hundred dollars being his entire lifetime savings. Bob was thinking hard. Now was the time to give the money back to old man Bartlett. But he had promised Doris he would not tell how she procured it. He thought it queer that the girl should care to protect the ne'er-do-well of a Tom Duffy. Nevertheless, he had given his word and would keep it. Jack was driving and was about to start the horses when Bob called. Wait a minute, Jack, will you? I'd like to take a look at those tracks. Mr. Wiggin, I'm a shark at recognising shoe prints. I wish you'd show them to me. The girls who were not in the secret smiled at each other knowingly. This carried out their theory that the members of the CDC were trying to solve the mystery of the highwayman. "'Sure thing, I'll show them to you,' the garrulous innkeeper replied. "'Wait till I get a lantern. Dark settling down fast.' A couple of the other boys climbed out of the sleigh, idly curious, and accompanied Bob and Mr. Wiggin, who had appeared with a lighted lantern. Doris clenched her hands together nervously under the buffalo rope. That Bob had his hunch, she was sure, but what he was about to do, she could not guess. Five minutes passed, and ten, then the boys returned, greatly excited. They were all talking at once. What happened? Mary called out. Happened? Dick Jensen exclaimed. The money's been found. Mr. Wiggins stumbled right over that bag of gold. The robber must have been frightened and dropped it in the snow close to his tracks. Every cent of it was there. Oh, thank goodness! Gertrude exclaimed. Now the old man can stop worrying. Mr. Wiggin held the lantern up. 
his round face glowing. It sure was a lucky thing that Bob here wanted to look at those tracks, he said. No telling but what that robber might have come back in the night, knowing where he had dropped it. Do hurry in, Mr. Wiggin, and give it to old Mr. Bartlett, Doris begged, and if there was an unusual tenderness in her voice, none of the others noticed it. Bob glanced meaningly in her direction as he sat beside his rose, and Doris, who had been silent before that, suddenly became the life of the party. "'Oh, boys, please change your minds about taking us right home,' she pleaded. "'We girls want to turn up the wood road just a little distance.' "'Why, Doris Drexel,' Betty Bird cried in evident alarm. "'What a wild suggestion! Why in the world would we want to go up their very road where the robbery took place?' "'That's what I'd like to know,' Bertha began. Then she remembered that Doris's suggestion was merely the carrying out of their plan to try to discover if the boys of the CDC held their secret meetings in the old Wesley haunted house. If the boys were willing to take the girls through the old ruin, it would mean it was not their meeting place. "'Oh, yes, do let's go,' Bertha then seconded. "'All right,' Jack sang out willingly. "'I'll have to back up a little. We've passed the wood road.' "'Oh, girls,' Mary gave Doris and Bertha a wink of understanding. "'Let's go there some other time. I think we've given our guest of honour enough thrills for tonight.' To which Geraldine heartily agreed, and so the horses were turned out onto the highway. When the girls had been left at their homes, the boys laughed and shouted as though a good joke. The girls would indeed have been mystified if they had heard them. End of chapter 14 Chapter 15 of The Seventh Sleuths Club this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter 15 A Boy's Repentance. Danny O'Neill, meanwhile, having skated across the lake, had returned to his work as he had promised Doris that he would. The colonel was away, and the lad hurriedly did the tasks expected of him. When these were finished, he went to his barren room over the garage, and, throwing himself down on his bed, he sobbed and sobbed. "'Oh, Mom,' he said aloud, "'I don't know how I'm going to get on without you. There's nobody now that cares, but I promised you I'd be brave and go straight, and I'll try, Mom. But it's hard, hard!' There was a light tap on the door, and the boy sat up hurriedly, drew his coat-sleeve over his eyes, then he rose and opened it. There stood the dearest little old lady, dressed in grey. She was smiling at him in the most loving way, and she said, "'Danny, I'm the Colonel's new housekeeper. I want to look after everyone living on the place, and so I came out to see what I can do for you.' The lad wondered if this little woman had heard what he, believing himself to be alone, had said but a moment before. Mrs. Gray had indeed heard, and she longed to take the lonely, motherless boy in her arms and try to comfort him, but, since she could not do this, she hurriedly planned to try in some measure to fill the place of the dear one the lad had so recently lost. Mrs. Gray took the colonel into her confidence, and the kindly man said, "'Well, well, I might have known how lonely the boy would be without his mother.' I remember how proud she was of him, and come to think of it, she asked me at one time if there wasn't some school where he could go without much expense and study drawing. She said he was always making pictures on his books or anything that was handy, and it caused a good deal of trouble between the boy and his father, because Mr. O'Neill declared that only a shiftless no-account would idle his time by making pictures. I'm glad you spoke to me about the lad, Mrs. Gray. I'll send for him this evening, perhaps, and have a talk with him. In the meantime, do anything you wish to make his quarters more comfortable. 
That very morning, at the housekeeper's request, the colonel sent Danny on an errand which would necessitate his being away for several hours. During that time, two easy chairs that were not needed in the big house were taken to the boys' room in the garage. Curtains made of coloured prints were hung at the windows, and another piece covered the bureau, on which stood a picture of the mother who had so loved her son. Mrs. Gray, with the colonel's permission, looked through his library and found several books that a boy would enjoy, Ivanhoe, The Last of the Mohicans, and a complete set of the writings of Mark Twain. These, with a few pictures, gave the room, formerly so barren, a pleasant, home-like appearance. And the little woman was busily renovating the lad's bed when Danny returned. "'Mrs. Gray,' he said, and there was a catch in his voice, "'have you been doing all this just for me?' "'Why, of course, Danny boy,' the little woman replied brightly. "'What is a housekeeper for, if not to make things cheerful and tidy?' Then she hurried on to say, "'The Colonel would like you to come to his study tonight at eight. When the boy was alone, he stood gazing out at the snowy fields. Although he did not see them, he was wondering if, by any chance, the colonel had heard of the highway robbery, and was going to rebuke him, perhaps discharge him. Half an hour later, he was called to the house by Mrs. Gray. "'You wanted at the phone,' she said. "'It's a lassie with a sweet voice is asking for you,' she added. The boy was sure that it must be Doris who wished to speak to him, and he was right. "'Danny, come over to my house at eight o'clock promptly. I have something important to tell you.' The lad turned away. Perhaps Doris knew that the sheriff was again on his trail and wanted to warn him. What should he do, and how could he explain his absence to the colonel? As Danny was leaving the telephone, he met the housekeeper, who smiled at him pleasantly. "'Mrs. Gray,' the boy said, "'a friend has just called up and asked me to be in town tonight at eight. Do you think the colonel would be willing to see me at another hour?' "'I'm sure of it,' the little old lady replied. "'He is alone in his study now. "'Wait here, Danny, and I will ask him.' "'A moment later she returned and told the boy that the colonel would see him. "'Almost fearfully the lad entered the pleasant room "'where the walls lined with books, statues and paintings "'told the artistic and literary taste of the gentleman "'who spent there many a quiet hour each day. "'The kindly welcome that Danny received banished his fear.' and when he left the study half an hour later, in his heart there was a new hope and a strengthened resolve. He whistled as he tramped into town that evening, and when Doris opened the door at his ring, his radiant face was so unlike the one she had last seen in the cabin, she marvelled at the change. "'Do tell me what has happened,' she said, as soon as they were seated. "'It is almost too wonderful to believe,' the boy exclaimed. "'It seems that last year my mother asked the colonel's advice "'about sending me to some inexpensive art school, "'and today he told me that if I still desire to go, "'he would help me accomplish that end. "'I'm to prove that I can stick at anything "'by working for him faithfully all winter, "'and then, in the spring, he will permit me to go to Dorchester Art Institute. "'The days will be long, and I can be up with the birds "'and work in the garage and garden before I go to the city, "'and again when I return.' I want to do commercial drawing of some sort. The boy paused, and a deep flush mounted his face. Good angel, he said. I forgot that you probably think me a criminal and a highwayman. Indeed I do not, Doris protested. I am so happy for you, and I just know that you will make good. But, Danny, you haven't asked me about the gold. I want you to know that it has been returned. The boy's sensitive face expressed his great relief. Then, unexpectedly, tears brimmed in his eyes. Doris, he said, for the rest of my life will not be long enough to atone for that terrible wrong. I hope I may be able to do a real service for that old man some day. I know you will, Danny. The girl put her hand lightly on his arm. 
Now I want you to promise me that you will never again mention or even think of what happened. Promise me, Danny. Before the boy could reply, the doorbell had pealed and laughing voices were heard without. The lad rose at once. Danny, don't go, Doris urged. Geraldine and Alfred and some of the others are out there, and they would be glad to meet you. The brightness left the boy's face, and he said bitterly, "'You are wrong, good angel. Geraldine Morrison had never spoken a pleasant word to me. You must remember that I am only their gardener.' The bell was ringing instantly, and so Doris swung the door open. A laughing crowd of girls and boys trooped into the hall. Danny tried to leave, but Bob stopped him. "'Hello, Dan,' he said, good-naturedly. "'Don't hurry away on our account. The more the merrier, you know.' "'Have you met Miss Morrison?' he then asked quickly. "'Of course you have. I forgot at the minute that you both live at the Colonel's.' Geraldine, pretending not to have heard her name, was talking to Doris with her back toward the boys. Bob noticed this, and then he realised that the proud city girl must consider Danny's position in the Wainwright home as a menial one. "'Sorry, you are going, Dan?' Alfred now came forward. "'Why don't you wait and ride home with Sis and me?' "'Thanks,' the other replied as he reached for his great coat. "'But I think I'd be better going now.' Suddenly there was a crashing noise in their midst, and a loosely wrapped bundle containing a pair of skates fell to the floor from beneath Danny's coat. "'Why, Doris!' Peggy exclaimed in astonishment. "'Those are your skates, aren't they? This morning, when I asked you if I might borrow them, you said you weren't able to find them.' Bob hurried to the rescue. "'Gust, you must have left them in the sleigh. Good thing Danny found them for you. Well, so long, old man. If you must go, see you again.' When the Irish boy had gone, Doris glanced at Bob, wondering if he had surmised that Damney O'Neill was the real highwayman. But the boy said nothing to confirm her suspicion that evening, nor ever after. However, Bob did know, and he determined that he would do all he could to help Danny O'Neill. "'Take off your things and stay a while,' Doris urged, but Mary shook her head. "'No, we just came to get you. We're so noisy when we're all together. I know we would disturb your mother.' "'Mums and dads have gone to a concert, and good old Katie doesn't mind how much noise we make, so put on your duds and let's go through the hedge. Jack shoveled a path today from your door to ours, one of his daily good deeds.' The Drexels and the Lees were next-door neighbours, with a pine hedge between them, but of course there was a gate in it. Fifteen minutes later they were on the big, comfortable Lee library with the Victrola turned on. Jack at once asked Geraldine to dance with him, and since she thought him nicest of all the boys, she was pleased to accept. After a time he led her to the settee in front of the fireplace, on which a log was burning. "'I'd rather talk a while,' he said, but instead of talking he sat looking into the fire. Geraldine, glancing at him, thought how good-looking he was. At last she lightly asked, "'Are your thoughts worth a penny?' Then she added, "'I don't believe that you even know that you are here.' The boy laughed as he replied, "'Well, I have to confess that my thoughts had taken me far away. I was travelling years into the future when you recalled me to the present.' Then, because of the girl's very evident interest, the lad continued, "'Dad and I had a heart-to-heart -heart talk this morning. He thinks that if I planned taking up his business of building and contracting, I would better begin to specialise along those lines. But I told him that, first of all, I want to go west and try cattle ranching.' "'Oh, Jack, what a dreadful thing to do!' the girl protested. The boy's face was radiant as he replied, "'You're mistaken. It's great out there.' But it was quite evident that his companion did not agree with him. "'A man who goes out to live on a desert ranch must expect to be a bachelor all his life,' Geraldine ventured, "'for no girl of our class would want to live in such desolate place.' 
The boy looked up brightly. "'Wrong again, Geraldine,' he said. "'The girl I would want to marry would live it out there.' Then he laughingly added, "'You see, I never intend to marry until I find someone who will be as fine a little homemaker as my mother is.' "'Mum could be a rich man's wife or a poor man's wife and shine in either position. She can make her own dresses and hats, if needs be, and enjoy doing it. And, as for cooking, Kate can't compare with her. "'Of course, I wouldn't expect my wife to be a drudge.' but I do want her to know how to do all the things that would make home a place of solid comfort. None of those pretty dolled-up society girls for me. The lad was not looking at his listener, and so he did not know that the rose in her cheeks had deepened, or that she was biting her lips angrily. Although she had no real reason for thinking so, she was convinced Jack was expressing his very poor opinion of her, Geraldine Morrison. She rose and said coldly, "'It's late. Alfred and I must be going.' That night she cried for a long time, though she could not have told why, and she decided that the next morning she would ask the colonel to permit her to return to the city, where the boys admired and understood her. End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 16 The Heart of a Snob The Colonel glanced anxiously at his young guest the next morning. She had been so bright and animated for days that the good man was beginning to hope that the city girl was becoming acclimated. But again she was looking pale and disinterested. When she had finished her breakfast and retired to her room, the Colonel called Mrs. Gray into the study, and together they had a long talk about Geraldine. "'Poor little girl,' the kind old lady said. "'She has never known a mother's love, and I would be glad to help her, but I can't reach her heart. "'She treats me courteously, but her attitude says as plainly as words, "'Mrs. Gray, you are only an upper servant from whom I wish no familiarity. "'I have tried ever since I came to find something which would be the open sesame of this stone barrier "'which the little girl has raised between us, but I am beginning to think that there is none.' "'Try just once more,' the Colonel said anxiously, "'and then, if you do not succeed, I will comply with her father's suggestion "'and send her away to a boarding-school if she is unhappy here.' "'The little old lady went directly to Geraldine's room and tapped on the door. "'There was no reply, and so she softly entered. "'The girl had thrown herself down on the window-seat, and her shoulders were shaken with sobs. "'Strangely enough, in one hand she held a stocking which she had evidently been attempting to darn.' Truly touched, the kind old lady went to her and said with infinite tenderness, "'Dear, dear little girl, won't you tell me why you are unhappy?' She sat beside Geraldine and smoothed her hair. "'Oh, why didn't my mother live?' was the sobbing reply. "'She would have taught me the things that other girls know how to do, when then no one could have called me a pretty dolled-up butterfly.' Mrs. Gray realised that someone had deeply hurt Geraldine's pride, and perhaps this was the very cleft in the stone wall for which she had been seeking." "'Little girl,' she said kindly, "'you cannot know how my heart has yearned through the years, first for a daughter of my own, and then for a granddaughter, to whom I might teach the things that would help her to become a truly womanly woman. It would mean so much to me, Geraldine. It would give me so much happiness if you would let me just pretend that you are that little girl.' The wondering lassie sat up, her beautiful violet eyes brimming with unshed tears. There were also tears in the eyes of the old lady— and, perhaps, for the first time in her sixteen years, the girl felt a rush of sympathy in her heart for someone not herself. 
"'You, too, are lonely, Mrs. Gray?' she asked. Then she added sorrowfully, "'I guess I never really knew what I had missed until I heard the boys and girls here talking of their wonderful mothers.' father has often told me that my mother was wonderful too she would have taught me to sew and make my own dresses and hats and to cook if that was what a girl should know the housekeeper marvelled this was not the geraldine of yesterday what had happened mrs gray could not know but what she did know was that it was a moment to seize upon and this she did geraldine she said let me teach you these things "'Oh, will you?' was the eager reply. "'How long will it take me to learn, do you think? "'May I begin a dress to-day?' Mrs. Gray laughed, and stooping, kissed the girl's wet cheek, then said, "'Get your coat, dearie, and we will go into town to buy the material.' This was the beginning of happy days for these two. A week later, Geraldine stood in front of the long mirror in her sun-flooded room, gazing with shining eyes at her own graceful self, clothed, for the very first time, in a garment of her own making.' She had begged Mrs. Gray to permit her to put every stitch so that she might truthfully say that she made it herself. To whom she wished to say this, the little old lady could not surmise. "'Isn't it the prettiest colour, Mrs. Gray?' Geraldine asked for the twentieth time as she looked at the clinging folds of the soft blue cashmere. "'It is indeed, dearie,' the housekeeper replied, "'and it is the blue that makes your eyes look like two lovely violets.' The girl's gaze wandered to the reflection of her face, and she smiled. "'Daddy says that my eyes are just like my mother's. "'I'm so glad.' "'Then shed it happily. "'It's all done, isn't it, Mrs. Gray? "'Except a collar, and we haven't decided how to make that yet, have we? "'Oh, there's a telephone. "'I wonder who it is.' "'Skipping to the little table near her bed, "'she lifted the receiver and called, "'Good morning.' "'Mary's voice said, "'Geraldine, we want you to come over this afternoon.' "'I'll be there,' the seamstress replied, and then, whirling around, she exclaimed, "'It was Mary Lee. She wants me to be at her house about three. How I wish I could wear my new dress!' "'Why, so you can, dearie. I'll cut out a deep muslin collar, and you can sew tiny ruffles around the edge, and the dress will be complete long before that hour.' In the early afternoon, all alone, Geraldine tramped down the snowy road, and her heart was singing. She could not understand why she felt so happy.' The girls were gathered in the cheerful library of the Lee home when Geraldine entered. They welcomed her gladly, and when her wraps were removed, Mary, in little girl fashion, exclaimed, "'Oh, look, everybody! Isn't that the sweetest new dress Geraldine has on?' The wearer of the dress, with flushed cheeks and glowing eyes, turned around that the girls might all examine her gown, and then, unable longer to keep her wonderful secret she exclaimed you'll never believe it but it's honestly true i made every stitch of this dress myself of course mrs gray cut it out and showed me how but truly i made it and i have never enjoyed doing anything more in my whole life then it was that geraldine chanced to glance at the open door of the music-room and the rose in her cheeks deepened for jack with book in hand was standing there Luckily, he had completely forgotten the conversation of the week before, and so he did not even dream that his theories had been the incentive for Geraldine's experiments in dressmaking. "'Jack,' his sister called, "'isn't this a pretty dress? Geraldine made it all herself.' "'It surely is,' the lad replied as he entered the room. "'It's the colour I like best.' Then, as Mary and Doris served hot chocolate and cookies, the lad sat on the window-seat beside Geraldine, and talked about his favourite subject, cattle-raising in Arizona." An hour later, when the girls were about to depart, he reappeared to announce that he would take them all home in his father's big sleigh if they did not mind being crowded. 
It was with a happy heart that Geraldine noticed that, one by one, Jack left the town girls at their homes, and then went round the longest way to the Wainwright place. End of chapter 16 Chapter 17 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 17 First Day in a New School It had been decided between Mr. Morrison and the Colonel, who had been corresponding about the matter, not to start Geraldine in the Sunnyside Seminary until she appeared to be quite contented to stay in the village. But on the Monday morning following the making of her dress, Geraldine herself appeared in the breakfast room unusually early and asked her Uncle Colonel if he would not take her out to the seminary and introduce her to Miss de Morris. How the old gentleman's face brightened as he asked, "'And so you are really content to stay and to be the sunshine of my home?' Impulsively the girl kissed his cheek. "'I'm glad you want me,' she said sincerely, "'and I'll try to be sunny.' Then, as Mrs. Gray had entered the room with a cheery good morning, the Colonel shared the good news. There was a mistiness in the grey eyes of the little old lady, and a song of thanksgiving in her heart. Geraldine, to prove them that her heart was changed, went over and kissed Mrs. Gray also, as she said, "'My dear little make-believe grandmother is helping me to see things in a different light, more as I would have seen them if mother had lived.' Then into the room came Alfred, and the good news was told to him. "'That's great!' he exclaimed. "'Dad will be so pleased. He is certainly a soft spot in his big heart for this little old town.' "'Say, Mrs. Gray, do you mind if I eat in a rush? I'm afraid I'll be late for the student special if I don't hurry.' Alfred and Jack went every morning to the prep school in Dorchester. During the sleigh ride to the seminary, Geraldine chatted happily about how surprised the girls would be to see her there. She had purposely timed their going when classes would be occupied, that she might surprise them at the recess, of which they had told her. And that is just what happened. After making arrangements with Mr. Morris for his ward to complete the winter term in the seminary, the Colonel departed, promising to return at the closing hour. But Geraldine said that she would like to walk back to town with the other girls, and that she would wait at Mary Lee's house until Jack and Alfred returned from Dorchester, then she and her brother could return together. The Colonel noticed a slight flushing of her pretty face as she made the suggestion, and he wondered about it as he drove home through the crisp, sunlit morning. After planning with Mr. Morris about the classes she would enter, Geraldine was told that she might wait in the library where a cheerful fire was burning in the hearth, and that, after the mid-morning recreation, she might accompany her friends to Miss Preen's English class. As Geraldine sat in the big comfortable chair in front of the fire, she had time to think how very different her stay in Sunnyside was turning out from what she had expected, how she had dreaded it, and how selfish and stubborn she had been. It was a wonder that the Colonel had ever wanted her to stay, and how could that dear Miss Gray be so nice to her when she had snubbed her so rudely? Even the girls had been generous to overlook her snobbiness when they came to call upon her. She actually laughed aloud when the thought of the prank they played upon her. Then she curled up in the chair and tried to hide, for the gong was announcing recess. A moment later, merry laughing was heard as the doors up and down the corridor opened and the day pupils and boarding pupils emerged from their classes. Geraldine was wondering where her group of friends would go. She had hoped they would flock to the library, nor was she disappointed. Although she could not see them, she knew their voices. Mary was saying, "'Girls, come in the library, Miss. I have news for you.' "'Is it secret?' Bertha asked. "'I'll say it is. 
"'That is, just at first. "'After a time we'll tell to Geraldine. "'Are we all here? "'Close the door, will you? "'Nobody will notice.' "'No, we're not all here. "'Gertrude isn't. "'Where can she be? "'Why didn't she come to school today?' "'Rose wondered. "'That's why I've called the special meeting,' "'Mary explained. "'Gertrude has gone to Dorchester to spend the winter. "'It was very sudden. "'She didn't even have time to call you all up to say good-bye. "'Her mother's sister was taken ill last night, "'and they sent for Gertrude to take care of the children.' Her aunt thinks everything of Trudy, and as she has to go to the hospital for an operation, she said she couldn't go contentedly unless Gertrude was there to look after her two babies. It will be spring before she can return. Oh, I say, that is too bad. She'll miss all the fun we've planned for the winter, Bertha said. But you have more to tell, Mary. What is it? Yes, I have, their president confessed. Gertrude suggested that, since we need a seventh girl in our secret society, she would like us to invite— there was a sudden rustling noise. Hark, there's someone in the room, Peggy announced. The girl in hiding sprang up. I'm terribly sorry, girls, she said. I didn't want to eavesdrop. I was crouching down the, so that I could leap out and surprise you when you came over by the fire, as I supposed, of course, you would. With a glad cry of surprise, her friends surrounded Geraldine, asking a dozen questions at once. How did she happen to be here? Was she going to stay? And when she had answered them all satisfactorily, Mary announced, "'This is like a play. Characters entered just when they're needed.' Geraldine's face was beaming. "'Oh, I am so glad. I am wanted, even,' she told them. "'I can't understand, though, how I could be needed.' "'We'll have to tell you later,' the President announced. "'The ten-minute recess is over. Hear that cruel gong? Now, Jerry, what class are you to start in?' Mr. Morris said that if I would accompany Mary Lee everywhere she went, I couldn't go wrong. "'Oh, goody, good!' Betty Bird exclaimed. That means we're all in Miss Preen's English class. Shh, come on, Rose called to them from the open doorway. Mary introduced the new pupil to the angular Miss Preen, and Geraldine thought she had never seen a thinner person or one with sharper eyes. She felt that she would heartily dislike the English teacher, but what did that matter as long as she was in the class with all of her friends? Before the hour was over, Geraldine had, at least, to acknowledge to herself that Miss Preen knew how to teach, and that she made the subject very interesting. After all, what more did one require in a teacher? From there they went to a song service conducted in the basement recreation hall by Professor Lowsley, whose hair, soft and grey and wavy, rested on his shoulders. His near-sighted eyes were gentle and light blue, and his manner one of infinite patience. For half an hour the forty girls in the school practised vocal scales all together. Then they sang songs, some old and some new, until the gong announced them for a change in activities. Geraldine was interested to know what was to happen next. We go to lunch now, Mary informed her, after we've washed up in yonder lavatory. The dining rooms were also in the basement, beyond the recreation hall, and Geraldine was delighted to find that she was to occupy Gertrude's place at the table with her six friends, and one teacher, a Miss Adeline Brockett. Young, who had been in charge of Jim, understanding theatricals and games. In reality she was Mr. Morris's assistant, and often had entire charge of the seminary during the principal's absences. The girls seemed to adore Miss Brockett, and of course Mary could not talk about their club plans with anyone else present. "'Isn't it great that we day pupils are allowed to have lunch here in these wintry days? It's a long mile to the middle of town, and that pokey old streetcar could never get us home and back in time for classes,' Peg said to Geraldine, who agreed it was a jolly plan. "'You missed math,' Rose informed her. "'We have that torturous subject first thing in the morning.' 
Then the afternoon classes began, history, general sciences, drawing, and French. But at last the three o'clock arrived and the girls started to walk to town. I'm so glad you didn't have your Uncle Colonel call for you, Mary informed Geraldine, who was walking at her side, the other girls following two by two, that being as wide as the walk had been shoveled in that suburban part of town. They passed fine old homes set far back on wide, snow-covered grounds among bare old trees. We have the most important club meeting at my house today, and— Geraldine stood still, exclaiming with sincere disappointment. Then I can't stop there and wait for Alfred, as I told my Uncle Colonel I would. Why not? Mary asked. Then, before her companion could reply, she exclaimed, Oh, I understand now. You think we wouldn't want to discuss club business with you there. You're wrong, Jerry, my dear. We especially do want you there. Now, don't ask me any questions. This is a secret club, and it wouldn't do for me to tell you a thing about it until the meeting is called. And with that explanation, the curious Geraldine had to be content. End of chapter 17 Chapter 18 of the Seventh Sleuths Club. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter 18 A Mystery to Solve. Meeting is called to order. Mary turned to beckon the girl, who, feeling rather like an intruder, had seated herself some distance from the others. "'Jerry, come over and sit in Jack's favourite easy chair,' their hostess says. "'Then you'll be in the circle with the rest of us.' Geraldine was conscious of the slight flush which she always felt in her cheeks when Jack's name was mentioned, but she gladly joined the others, sinking into the luxurious depths of a softly upholstered, cosy, comfy chair. "'You'll have to say interesting things to keep me awake,' she laughingly warned them as she snuggled down in it. "'Don't worry about this meeting not being interesting. "'It's going to be a thriller,' the President announced. "'Whereupon the members all sat ready to ask a chorus of questions, "'but Mary pounded on the table before her with her improvised gavel "'and ornamented paper-cutter, as she said imperatively, "'Silence, if you please. We will now have the roll-call. "'Sleuth Rose, are you present?' "'A laughing response. I am.' "'And so on until each had been called. "'Geraldine was very much awake.' "'Madam President,' she burst in, "'if I'm not too much out of order, "'will you please tell me why you called these pretty maidens "'by such a terrible name? Sleuths? "'Ooh!' she shuddered. "'I thought sleuths were long, lank, stealthy creatures "'who steal around slums and underworld places "'trying to find criminals.' "'Well, perhaps some sleuths do,' Mary acknowledged, "'but we aren't quite that desperate.' "'Then Peg put in, "'Oh, I say, Mary, have a heart. "'Don't mystify Jerry any longer. "'Begin at the beginning and tell her what our club has stood for in the past "'and what it will accomplish in the future.' "'How can I reveal what nobody knows?' their president inquired. "'However, she turned to Geraldine and told her "'how the seven girls, who had always walked back and forth to school together, "'had formed a clique, "'which at first they had named the Sunnyside Club, "'with spread sunshine for a motto.' "'Our St. Gertrude's suggestion, you may be sure,' Rose interjected. "'Well, we did do a great deal to make the children up in the orphanage happy,' Betty Bird championed, as though feeling that the absent member was in some way being maligned. Bertha Angel agreed with her emphatically. "'Of course we did, little one, and we intend to keep it up. Being sleuths won't in any way keep us from doing good deeds.' "'But what is there to be sleuthing about in this sleepy little town of Sunnyside?' Geraldine wanted to know. "'And why do you want to do it if there is?' "'Oh, we don't really,' Rose told her. 
It's sort of like taking a dare. The boys have a club which they call CDC, and they aren't terribly secret about it. They have a mysterious meeting place, and since we girls aren't allowed to roam about at nights unless our brothers are along to protect us, we never can find out where they meet. We sort of thought it might be the old Walsley ruin on the East Lake Road. That's why we asked them to take us there on Saturday after that robbery. We thought if that was their secret meeting place, they would have fitted it up like a club room some way, and then, of course, they wouldn't want us to visit it. But when they said sure thing, they'd take us if we wanted to go, why then we were convinced that it's not where they hold their secret meetings. Peggy interrupted with, Maybe you were convinced, old dear, but I was not. You say we can't go up the East Lake Road at night when the boys hold their meetings. Of course we can't, but what's to hinder us from going up there alone sometime in the daylight? If that old man who killed himself haunts the place at all, it wouldn't be while the sun is shining. Ugh, Jerry said with a shudder. Now I believe you are, sleuths, wanting to visit a haunted house. But tell me, what kind of club is the CDC? It's a detective club, and we, that is, Mary figured out, by putting two and two together, that it means Conan Doyle Club. Jack shut her in the closet one day, and before she could let him know she was there, she heard enough to know that he and his friends have tried to find some mystery to solve in Sunnyside, and have declared that there isn't one, and so they take turns making up mysteries. They read them at these secret meetings, and let the others try to figure out the clues. "'Is that where you girls started to be sleuths?' Jerry wanted to know. Bertha nodded. Mary heard one of the boys say that an uncle of his in New York, who was a lawyer, had written about a famous girl detective, and the others scoffed at the very idea. They said you couldn't imagine girls ever solving a mystery, not if they were like girls in the sunny side. So you see, that was a sort of dare, and we made up our mind that we would find a mystery and solve it, and then crow about it, but the joke is, we haven't found a mystery. Mary continued with, Peggy and Doris were a committee of two to find one, and they were to make the report last Saturday. But, but nothing, Peg interrupted. You know we were so busy planning that impromptu skating party out of the Drexel Lodge, we didn't have time to call a meeting. Well, if we had called one, the President persisted, you girls wouldn't have had a mystery to present. Wouldn't we, though? Peg's eyes fairly glistened. Doris, now is the psychological moment, as Miss Preen would say, for springing our find. The girls, except Geraldine, gasped. She was yet too mystified to realise the importance of the announcement. They watched Doris, who once dropped her school books and drew from her history a clipping from a newspaper. This is from the Dorchester Chronicle, she announced, and it certainly sounds mysterious to Peg and me. She looked around them, deliberately tantalising. Oh, for goodness sakes, do hurry and read it, Bertha Angel urged. Peg, you read it. You can do it full justice. Doris passed it over to her felly committeeman, who pretended to study it leisurely. "'Peg, if you don't hurry up and tell us, we'll mob you.' Bertha stood up and seized a pillow from the window seat, holding it threateningly. "'Be calm, Sister Sleuth,' Peg said, and then she had the small scrap of paper close to a window as the short afternoon was drawing to a close. "'It is headed, Information Wanted. A man owning a cattle ranch in Arizona has written in the Chronicle asking that the following letter be given publicity.' Dear sirs, my young and pretty sister Myra was sent east to be educated. Our parents wanted to get her away from a near-do-well gambler she had met in Douglas. He followed her east and married her. We never heard from her again, but believe she is settled in some small community near Dorchester. I am running the ranch, but half of it belongs to Myra, and, as I believe if she is living, she must be in need. I want to find her. Signed, Caleb K. Cornwall. Peg looked up triumphantly. There, what do you think of that for a mystery? 
Mary acknowledged that it was a mystery, of course, but why think the pretty young Myra settled in Sunnyside? There are at least six small villages with a radius of forty miles, she reminded them. Oh, of course, maybe it is an our town, but also maybe it is. Peg was not going to let them lose sight of whatever value there was in the find she and Doris had made. Oh, how provoking! Here come Jack and Alfred. Now we'll have to adjourn just when the meeting is most interesting. Shh! Don't let them hear us talking about it. Let's meet here again tomorrow afternoon, Mary said hurriedly. But you won't want me to come, will you? Geraldine asked, and very much hoping that they would say that they did want to. Nor was she disappointed. Why, of course we do, Jerry. Then Mary exclaimed self-rebukingly, How stupid of me! I started to tell in school that Gertrude wanted us to invite you to take her place in the SSC for the rest of the winter while she is away. But I remember now, then the gong rang, and I forgot, and sort of thought I had told you. Then Peg asked, You'd like to be sleuth, Jerry, wouldn't you? How the older girl's eyes were glowing. I'd like it more than anything that has ever happened in my life, she answered them. Then Mary put a finger on her lips and nodded towards the hall door. Doris, taking the hint, exclaimed, And those dear little orphans will simply be delighted to have a valentine party. We can fix things up so prettily, I do think. The door had opened and Jank sang out, Our sunny-side spreaders, I observe, are holding one of their most commendable meetings. Unlike the CDCs, they have no secrets to hide. He winked to Alfred, who laughed so understandingly that the others were led to believe that Geraldine's brother had also been admitted to the boys' club. Nor were they wrong. "'How did you like your first day in our country school?' Jack asked Jerry as he crossed to where she sat by the fire and stooped over the blaze to warm his hands. "'Oh, I loved it,' that maiden frankly confessed, and then acknowledged, "'It's really nicer in lots of ways than the Dorchester Seminary.' Then she rose. "'We'd better be going, brother,' she began when the telephone whirred. Mary turned from it to say that the colonel was in town and would call for them in five minutes. "'Well, we'll be over tomorrow to plan that Valentine's party for the orphans,' Peg called as the girls trooped away. Then the colonel's sleigh-bells were heard coming up the drive. Just before she left, Geraldine drew Mary to one side to say in a low voice, "'Tell the girls how very grateful I am to them for having taken me in after I'd been so unforgivingly horrid.' Mary gave her friend's hand a loving squeeze. "'I think we are the ones to ask forgiveness for the prank we played,' she said, then impulsively added, "'Let's be sister-friends, shall we?' Jerry felt the tell-tale flush in her cheeks, but Alfred was calling. "'Do hurry, sister. This isn't good-bye forever.' And so laughingly they parted. End of chapter 18 Chapter 19 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 19 Searching for Clues The next afternoon the girls found Bob waiting near the seminary with the delivery sleigh. Geraldine, for half a moment, was amazed to hear the squeals of delight uttered by her companions as they swarmed up into the straw-covered box part of the cutter. "'This is great!' Mary exclaimed. "'But how did you happen to do it, Bobby, dear?' The boy nodded towards his sister, who replied for him. "'Bob said he would be returning from Dorchester about this hour, and I asked him to pick us up, like an angel child, so we could have a longer meeting. It gets dark so early, and it takes a full half an hour to walk the mile to Mary's.' Sort of a ruddy-looking angel child, Rose, at the boy's side, teased him. 
The round, pleasant face of the boy was always ruddy, but today it was unusually so, partly because of the long drive he had had in the frosty air, and partly because of his pleasure at having Rose with him. Down the wide, snow-covered road they sped, and Geraldine could not but compare this ride with those that were being taken by the pupils of the Dorchester Seminary, where most fashionable turnouts each day awaited the closing hours. But she had to honestly confess that she was having much more fun than she had ever had before. Mary smiled across at her, and Jerry smiled back, happily recalling the whispered request of the evening before. Let us be sister friends, shall we? All out for Merrydale! Bob was soon calling as he drew rein in front of the Lee house. Then, to the girl at his side, he said in a low voice, I'll be through the store at five. May I drive you home? Yes, indeed, and stay to supper, Rose said brightly, adding as an afterthought, Jerry and Alfred can go with us, can't they? Then the colonel won't have to come after them. Sure thing, the good-natured boy replied. So long. There now, Mary announced when they were sitting about the fire five minutes later. We have a good two hours if nobody interrupts us, and we ought to be able to delve deeply into our mystery. Peg, will you or Doris review the facts of the case? Shouldn't we call them clues? Bertha inquired. Oh, I don't know. I haven't been a sleuth long enough to be sure about anything, the President smilingly admitted. Then Doris reminded them that it was a ranchman in Arizona named Caleb K. Cornwall, who was searching for a young and pretty sister named Myra, who had married a ne'er-do-well and supposedly had settled in some small community near Dorchester, in New York State. "'Well, sleuth Bertha, you look wise, and what would you suggest we do first? Mary had turned towards the tall maiden, whose expression was habitually serious and thoughtful. I was just wondering if there's any woman in town named Myra. Our mothers might know, for I suppose this lost person is about their age. How come? Peg asked. There is no mention of age in the letter, merely that she was a young and pretty girl when she was sent east to school. That might have been ten years ago, or twenty, thirty, or any number, Rose reminded them. True enough, Mary conceded. Wait a moment. Mother is in her sewing room, I think. I'll ask her if she's ever heard of a woman in Sunnyside named Myra. Won't you wonder at your asking? Peg was fearful, lest their secret would be divulged. No, indeed. Mary shook her head. Mum isn't even remotely curious about what our club is doing. She knows we are holding a meeting, but that's all. In less than ten minutes she was back again with two names written on a magazine cover. I don't think these will help us much, she informed the girls, whose alert attitudes proved their eager interest. One is Myra Comley. She lives below the tracks and takes in washing. Mother thinks she may be around forty. The other is Myra Ingersoll. She lives out on the old Dorchester Road. Mother doesn't know where, but it's a farm that makes a speciality of chickens and eggs. The woman makes jelly and sells it too. That's really all Mother knows about her. The name on each jar, Mum says, is Myra Ingersoll's Jam. Like that. We get them from the grocery. You ought to know about them, Bertha. I do, that maiden replied, and what's more, I know the woman. I've been in the store when she brought in her wares. I've been trying to picture her, Mary, while you were talking, as having ever been young and pretty, but I just can't. She's a big-boned, awkward person with red-gray hair, drawn back as though it had a weight on it, and sharp blue eyes. The girl shook her head. I'm convinced she is not the Myra Mr. Cornwall wants to find. How old is the jam person? Jerry contributed her first inquiry. Oh, close to sixty, perhaps, although she may be younger. She's had a hard life, I judge. 
"'We might call them up on the telephone and ask them if they ever lived in Arizona,' Betty Bird naively suggested. How the others laughed. "'Little one,' Bertha remonstrated, "'don't you know that if they ran away from Arizona and in hiding, so to speak, "'they would, of course, refuse to tell that it had once been their home? "'I mean in answer to such an abrupt question as would have to be answered over the phone.' my suggestion is that we make some legitimate excuse for calling at the homes of the two myras and finding if we can some clues without arousing their suspicion hats off to sleuth bertha peg sang out when and how shall we make the first call doris leapt up in her eagerness if one of the myras is a washwoman let's drive over there to-morrow with the drexel weekly laundry mother said yesterday that the palace new method injures the clothes and she wants to find someone to do it by hand "'Say, boy, but we're in luck,' the slangy member exulted. "'And as for the other Myra,' Rose said, "'we might chip in together and buy a chicken or two, "'and that would give us an excuse to visit her farm.' "'Bravo! Keen idea! Hooray for our Roseblood!' "'There were exclamations which proved that the suggestion met with general approval. "'But what would we do with two chickens?' "'Round-eyed the youngest member inquired. "'Eat them, little one,' Peg began.' "'Not until they're cooked, I hope,' Jerry laughingly put in. "'Say, fellow sleuths, I have a peachy idea,' Peg announced. "'Let's get up a Valentine dinner and invite the boys. "'Saturday's the 14th, and we can make quite a spread of it "'and kill two birds with one stone, so to speak.' Two hens, do you mean?' Rose inquired. "'A sofa pillow was hurled at her. "'You need submerging,' Doris told her. "'How about that Valentine's party for the orphans?' Mary asked slyly. "'It seemed to me one was suggested last night just as the boys came home.' "'Sure thing, we'll have one, but that will be different. "'Now this Valentine party—' "'Peg could say no more, for the door had opened and two laughing boys stood there. "'Mary rose and confronted her brother. "'Jack Lee, how long have you been in the hall listening to our club doings?' "'Not a fraction of a second, have we, Alf?' he turned to his companion for corroboration. "'All I heard is just that you were saying last night that you were going to give a party for the orphans on Valentine's Day.' The girls looked still unconvinced, and so Alfred leapt into the breach with, "'He is proof sufficient, I should think.' He held out his coat-sleeve, on which there were frosty snow-stars as yet unmelted. "'If we'd been in the house long, they would be dewdrops. Is it not so?' "'Verily!' Peg seemed relieved— as did the others, but when the boys had gone into Jack's study, which adjoined the library, the girls were puzzled to hear laughter that the boys were evidently trying to muffle. Mary put a warning finger on her lips, which meant that they would postpone further discussion until another day. End of chapter 19 Chapter 20 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 20 The Sleuths Sleuthing Isn't it keen that we have this whole Friday afternoon off, Peg pirouetted about on the snowy road in front of the girls. Now we can carry out all of our plans before dark, if— She hesitated, and Doris continued with— if the biggest word in the language if we can beg borrow or hire a cutter large enough to take us all out to the east lake road bertha you'll have to drive being our expert horsewoman the girls had luncheoned at the school and were trooping townwards having been excused for the afternoon as none of them happened to be in a play which had to be rehearsed from two to four 
"'Here's another if,' Rose put in. "'If the snow wasn't so deep on the lake road, "'we might all pile in my runabout. "'I can drive it as skilfully as Bertha can drive her father's horses.' "'But there is snow on the roads as soon as you leave town,' "'Geraldine contributed. "'The snowplough hasn't even reached as far as the Wainwright home.' "'Well, let's go to the Angel Grocery first and see if a delivery sleigh can be borrowed, "'and if not, why, then maybe I can inviggle my papa dear to loan me one of his,' Peg suggested. "'This plan was followed, and fifteen minutes later the girls were seated on the bottom of a box sleigh "'with Bertha and Mary up on the driver's seat. "'Dad needs this fashionable turnabout by five o'clock,' Bertha said as she urged the big dapple grey horse to his briskest trot. "'Now first we are to stop at the Drexels and get the bundle of laundry, I believe.' The driver glanced over her shoulders, and Doris nodded in the affirmative. It's all done up and waiting. Another fifteen minutes, and the dapple, having crossed the tracks, turned into a narrow side street where the houses were small, with many evidences of poverty. Mary had found the address in the telephone book, and when the right number was reached, Dapple was brought to a standstill. This house looks real neat, Betty Bird commented. Clean white curtains at the windows, and a big backyard, and a lot of washing hung out. Doris patted their youngest as she approved. Observation is surely an excellent trait for a sleuth to develop. Won't our victim think it queer that it takes seven girls to deliver one bundle of washing? Geraldine paused to inquire as they trooped through the gate. What care we? Mary was already up to the step and turned to knock the door when it was opened by a girl of about their own age. How do you do, Miss Angel? she addressed Bertha, whom she knew by sight. Won't you all come in? They entered a small but spotlessly clean sitting-room, and Doris asked, "'Is Mrs. Myra Comely here?' "'No, Mother isn't here just now. Won't you be seated?' Doris hesitated. "'I, uh, I wanted to ask her a few questions about, well, about her methods of laundering.' The girl had a pleasant face, and she seemed not at all abashed to have so many of the town's aristocracy calling upon her at once. "'Mother is careful to use nothing that could harm the clothes, if that's what you mean,' she informed them. "'I expect her home directly, if you care to wait.' Then, seeing that there were not chairs enough, she excused herself and brought two from the kitchen and placed them for Doris and Bertha. When they were all seated, Mary, with a meaning glance at her fellow sleuths, which seemed to say, "'We may be able to get the information we need from her daughter,' glanced out of the window as she said idly, "'We're having a pleasant winter, aren't we?' "'Yes, there's lots more snow in your town, though, than where we came from.' Blue eyes and brown flashed exulting glances at one another. "'Then Sunnyside has not been your home for long?' Mary inquired. The girl shook her head. "'No, we lived in Florida for years, but I was born in Ireland. That was father's home, but mother came from—' She hesitated and glanced about apologetically. Every eye was upon her, every ear listening, but of their eager interest the girl could not guess. "'I chatter on about my folks as though you'd care to hear where we all came from,' she said. "'Oh, we do care an awful lot,' Betty Bird assured her. Then, catching a reproving glance from Doris, the youngest wilted and the older girl said, "'I think it's always interesting to hear where people come from, don't you, miss?' "'My name's Myra Comely, just as my mother's is.' Then she added brightly, "'Here she is now.' The door opened and a pleasant-faced woman of about forty entered and removed a shawl which she had worn over her head." "'How do you do?' she said, with a smile which included them all. Doris stepped forward and explained that her mother wished to have her laundry done by hand, and so they had brought it to her. Mrs. Comley thanked her and told her about her methods and prices. After that there was nothing for the girls to do but rise, preparing to go. Mary, in a last desperate effort to attain the information they desired, turned to the door to say, 
"'Your daughter tells us that you are from Ireland. "'I have always been so interested in that country "'and hope to visit there some day.' "'The woman smiled. "'I liked Ireland,' she said, "'but I was about your age or a little older "'when I left the States as a bride for that faraway island.' "'It was cold out and the door was open. "'What could the girls do to obtain the information they needed?' Peg plunged in with, "'Which state did you come from, Mrs. Comley?' The girls gasped, but, if the woman thought it a strange question, she made no sign of it. "'I was born in a little village on the other side of Dorchester. Your laundry will be delivered on Tuesday, Miss Drexel.' As the girls were driving away, Peg said, "'I suppose it was awful of me to come right out with that question, but we just had to know.' "'Oh, probably sleuths have to ask.' questions sometimes, although it's more clever to get information in a roundabout way, Doris said, then asked, Bertha, how did Myra Comley happen to know your name? She trades at our store, was the reply. Everyone in town, sooner or later, sees me there helping Dad. I post his books for him. Geraldine felt somewhat shocked, to think that she was associating with a girl who sometimes worked in a grocery. The snob in her was not entirely dead, she feared. "'But she must kill it. "'How Jack would scorn her if he knew her thoughts.' "'They were all in the sleigh and the big horse, Dapple, "'glad to be again on the move, "'for the air was snappily cold even though the sun was shining, "'started toward the lake road and his merriest pace. "'Snowballs flew back at the laughing girls from his heels. "'It's three now,' Bertha glanced at her rinsed watch. "'Shall we stop at the old ruin before or after we visit the Ingersoll farm?' The opinions being divided, as was their usual custom, they permitted the President to decide, and she said wisely that she thought it more important to visit the farm than it was the ruin, and so they would better go there first. They were glad when they passed the inn that Mr. Wiggin or his wife were not in evidence. Mr. Wiggin was so garrulous that, if he saw any of the boys in town, he would ask what the girls had been doing out that way alone. Betty Bird held fast to Doris as they turned into the sidewood road, which was a shortcut to the old Dorchester Highway. "'Skeered, little one?' the older girl smiled down at her. "'Well, sort of,' the younger girl confessed. "'This is where that old man was robbed, and—' "'Oh, fudge!' Peg sang out. "'Forget it. That was the first hold-up that ever occurred around here, and probably will be the last.' "'Where's the Wellesley farm?' Geraldine inquired after a time. "'Beyond the tall pine-tree hedge,' Mary indicated with a wave of her fur-lined glove, "'you'll see the crumbling cupola in a second. "'The girls gazed intently at the little they could see of the house as they passed the long high hedge. "'I don't believe the boys come out this way for their meetings,' Bertha the sensible remarked when they had turned into the old Dorchester Road. "'In fact, I don't believe they could, much of the time, because of the snow-drifts. "'I think if we want to find where their club-rooms are, we'll have to look somewhere nearer home.' A moment later, Peg called. There it is. See that name on the signboard? The Ingersoll Chicken Farm, and under it, Jams and Jellies a Specialty. They turned at a wide gate in the picket fence and found themselves in a large dooryard in front of a substantially built white farmhouse. In the back was an orchard and long rows of berry bushes, and at the side were many chicken runs wired in. A tall, angular woman wearing a man's coat and hat appeared from a barn carrying a basket of eggs. The girls climbed from the sleigh and walked toward her. "'Peg, suppose you do the talking this time,' Mary suggested. "'But use diplomacy. Don't plunge right in.' "'No, thanks,' that maid shook her head vehemently. "'It's up to you, Mary.' And so their president advanced with her friendliest smile. "'Mrs. Ingersoll?' The woman, without a visible change of features, acknowledged that to be her name, and so Mary said, "'We would like to buy a couple of chickens, about two or three pounds each.' This surely sounded innocent enough.' 
the woman was most business-like. To the surprise of the girl, she took from her coat pocket a whistle and blew it at a shrill blast. Instantly, or almost so, a long, lank youth appeared out of a nearby chicken-yard and called, "'What you want, ma?' Two threes fixed,' was the terse reply. Then to the girls, "'Come along in and get yourselves warm. Beastly cold this weather we've been having, though it's let up a spell.' The girls followed the woman into a large, clean kitchen. A fire snapped and crackled in the big wood stove. There was a long wood box near it which served as a window seat, and four of the girls ranged along it. Others sat on white pine chairs, stiff and just alike. The woman eyed them with an expression which revealed neither interest nor curiosity as to who they were. The girls found it harder to ask questions of this adamant sort of creature than they had of Myra Comely. But it was she who broke the ice by asking, "'Do you all live in Sunnyside?' Mary nodded, smiling her brightest. "'Yes, we're all from town.' Then she hurried to take the advantage of the opening. "'Have you been here long, Mrs. Ingersoll?' "'Yep, born close to here, never been out of the state in my life.' Ep me son Ian's but born here and ain't so much as been out of the county. Don't reckon he's like to and, and he's set on marrying a gal down the road just a piece. The woman turned abruptly and went through a door. The girls looked at each other tragically. That didn't take long, but alas for us, no clues. Doris put up a finger on her lips and nodded towards the door which was again opening. The woman reappeared, divested of her masculine outer garments. She had on a dull red flannel dress, severely plain, and with a white apron, the sort of farmer's wives reserved for company wear. She was carrying a dish of cookies and an open jar of jam. She actually smiled as she placed them on the spotless white wood table. "'Help yourselves,' she said, hospitably. "'Here's a knife to spread on the jam, and here's a tin dipper over here by the sink if you need water to help wash them down.' When they were again in the sleigh in a safe distance from the house, the girls laughed merrily. Mrs. Ingersoll's kernel is sweeter than her husk, Bertha remarked, then added, Girls, we'll have to go home on this road and leave our visit to the old ruin until some other time. It's four-thirty now. Well, we've got our chickens anyway, Mary said, as she held the brown paper bundle aloft. Kate said we may have her kitchen tomorrow from two o'clock for the rest of the day. Now let's plan what else we must get. I'll tell Jack to invite the boys to our Valentine dinner. Won't they be surprised when they think we were planning it for the orphans? End of chapter 20 Chapter 21 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 21 a Valentine Party On Saturday afternoon, when Geraldine was leaving Colonel Wainwright's home at about one-thirty, she saw Danny O'Neill working at the summer house where he was replacing some of the lattice work which had broken under the heavy weight of snow. Suddenly she remembered something Doris had said when they had been planning the Valentine dinner. I wish Danny O'Neill could be invited, but he probably wouldn't come. He thinks that some of us consider him merely a servant. The city girl could not understand why Doris wanted the boy, and she realised it was her own attitude that was keeping him away. Then she remembered what Mrs. Gray had told her about his great loneliness for the mother who had so recently died. Geraldine also knew what it was to be motherless. Then, once again, she felt the sweet influence of real sympathy, and, turning back, she called, "'Danny O'Neill!' We girls are giving a surprise valentine party at Mary Lee's home tonight at six, and Doris particularly wants you to come with Alfred. 
Then, before the amazed lad could reply, the girl turned and hurried down the walk to where her brother waited in a cutter to drive her into town. On the way she told Alfred what she had said to Danny, and she asked him to persuade him to accept since Doris wanted him so. "'Sure thing I will,' the boy replied heartily. "'He's a mighty nice chap. Lots of talent, too, I should say. I was up in his room last night for a while. He was carving bookends. I thought it mighty clever work.' Geraldine, upon reaching the Lee home, found the other girls there before her. The big, cheerful kitchen swarmed with them. They had agreed to wear white dresses with red sashes and red ribbon butterfly bows in their hair, but their aprons were full of colours. Mary was giving orders. Here, Doris, you crack these walnuts, will you? Bertha's going to make one of her famous nut cakes. Then she interrupted herself to say, Oh, Jerry, hello. You've arrived just in time to... to... She looked around to see what the newcomer could do. "'Send her over here to help my pair potatoes,' Peg sang out. But Mary saw, by the almost startled expression in the city girl's face, that she would be more apt to cut her fingers than the humble vegetable, and so she replied, "'No, Peg, that's your work. Jerry shall help me set the table.' Then she apologised. "'I'm sorry to do the pleasantest thing myself, but no one knows where the dishes and things are.' "'Oh, it's all pleasant,' Bertha commented, "'when we're together.' "'What's our rosebud doing?' Jerry sauntered across the kitchen to the stove where their prettiest member stood stirring something in a pot. The hour proved how completely the city girl felt that she was one of them. "'Making valentine candy,' that maiden replied. "'This is sort of a white fudge. It's ever so creamy when it's whipped. Just delicious with chopped nuts in it. We're going to make hearty shapes, then dip them in red frosting.' For an hour they all worked busily at their appointed tasks. Then Mary and Jerry called the others into the dining-room to see the table. "'Ooh, how pretty! Girls, will you look at the red ribbons running from the heart-shaped box in the middle to each place? What's the idea, Mary?' "'You'll know later,' their president laughingly informed them. "'That's a surprise for everybody which Jack and I planned last night.' Then Geraldine exclaimed, "'Why, Mary, you have made a mistake, haven't you? There are sixteen places instead of fifteen. "'Nary a mistake,' Doris replied. "'We have invited that pretty Myra Comely, and she has accepted.' Then, before the astonished Geraldine can say, "'What? Invited a washwoman's daughter?' Doris was hurrying on to explain how it had happened. "'Myra brought our laundry home this morning, and we had quite a long visit. Mary was over at my house, and we both liked her ever so much. And when she said that she had never been to a party, why, we just invited her to ours. I hope you don't mind.' There was a shade of anxiety in the voice of Doris as she glanced at the taller girl whose expression was hard to read. There was indeed a struggle going on in Geraldine's heart, but good sense won out. She slipped an arm affectionately about her friend as she said, "'Anyone who is good enough for you to associate with is good enough for me.' The other girls had drifted back to the kitchen to resume their tasks, and these two were alone. "'Doris, dear,' Jerry said, "'I told your friend Danny O'Neill I hoped he would come, and I made Alfred promise to bring him.' How the pretty face of Doris brightened. That was mighty nice of you, she exclaimed. Now I know he will come. I telephoned him early this morning, but he seemed to think you wouldn't care to associate with him. That is, not socially. Then an imperative voice called from the kitchen. Say, you two ornaments in there, come on out and help us with this chicken. At six o'clock all was in readiness, and the seven girls, divested of aprons, waited the ringing of the doorbell, with cheeks as rosy as their ribbons. They had the house quite to themselves, as Mrs. Angel had obligingly invited Mary's parents to dinner, and Katie had been only too glad to spend the afternoon and evening with her friends below the tracks. 
"'Here comes somebody. Who do you suppose will arrive first? Mary had just said when the door opened, and Jack ushered in Myra Comley. Mary had asked her brother to bring her, but almost before the door had closed the bell was jingling, and all of the others arrived at once. In the whirl of excitement that followed, with everybody welcoming everybody else, no one noticed that Danny had drawn Doris to one side and was giving her a package. "'It's a valentine that I made for you. Bookends that I carved,' he said in a low voice. "'Don't open it here.' Geraldine glanced in their directions, just as Doris lifted sweet brown eyes and smiled her appreciation at the boy. But before she could puzzle about the meaning of it, Jack had taken her hand and was leading her into the living room, which was festooned with strings of red paper hearts. Jokingly, he began, "'Fair Queen of Hearts, I am the Jack of Hearts. Won't you please tell me where you've hidden the tarts?' What a throng of them there was as they swarmed into the brightly lighted living room. "'Don't sit down, anybody,' Mary warned. The party part is going to start right away, but first you have to draw for partners. Then she explained that she would pass a basket to the boys that would contain halves of valentines, and at the same time Jerry would pass one with the other halves to the girls. You are each to take one, and the two who have the parts of one valentine are to be partners. The girls are to stand still and the boys to do the hunting. For ten merry minutes boys darted around matching halves of valentines. The result was rather disappointing to several of them. For Rose was not for Bob, and Jack drew Myra Comley, while Jerry, of all the queer tricks of fate, was Danny O'Neill's partner, but they took it in good part, and when Mary put an appropriate song record on the Victorola, they all marched out to the dining room. The girls felt quite repaid for their efforts when they heard the sincere exclamation of the approval which the boys uttered. Then Mary, as hostess-in-chief, explained that each couple was to select seats, and that they should do this thoughtfully, as the ribbons had at the other end's prophecies as to their future. They were tied in tiny bows on the ribbons for the girls. Amid much laughter from the fair ones and wisecracks from the boys, places were chosen, and then, when they were all seated, one by one the ribbons were pulled, and out of the box heart, on the middle of the table, a small red paper heart was drawn, and on it a jolly jingle was a prophecy for the future. As each was drawn, it was read aloud and followed by much laughter and teasing, especially when Bob read, A dark brunette shall be your wife, and she will lead you such a life, of woe and worry and of strife. "'Oh, I say, Rose,' Bob grinned across the table at the girl who sat opposite him. "'Are you going to let that dark brunette get me?' "'Read yours, Rosie,' Mary called gaily, and so Rose read. "'A long, lank spinster you will be, a catch-your-owny company, your favourite pastime drinking tea.' "'Oh, that's a horrid one!' The prettiest pushed it from her and pretended to frown. "'I'm going to choose another place. I really wanted to sit where you are, Peg. Read yours so I'll know what I might have had.' gleefully peg complied you'll marry a gay young millionaire you'll travel together just everywhere and all in your life never have a care hooray for me peg sang out and but bob put in well i'm glad rose didn't choose that ribbon a grocer doesn't often get to be a millionaire and so around the table they read their futures when the dinner was served and so excellent was every dish that had been prepared by the fair hands that jack was led to exclaim Lucky will be the swins who win these cooks for their valentines through life. Then, to the actual embarrassment of one of them, he said, Jerry, which of these good things did you cook? But before the city girl, who knew nothing whatsoever about cooking, could acknowledge the fact, Mary said gaily, Jerry and I did the decking of the table this time. Some other time we'll have to show you what we can do as cooks. 
Then, to her own amazement, Geraldine heard herself saying, I'm going to give a party soon, all by myself, and everyone who is here now is invited. Her glance even included Myra Comley and Danny O'Neill. Then she concluded with, I'll let you know the date later. Her brother was delighted to think that his sister had entered into the social life of the village with so much evident enjoyment, and that night when they reached home he took occasion to tell her how pleased he had been with the impromptu invitation. They were standing alone in the living room in front of the fireplace where they had stood on that first day when the milkmaids and butter churners had come to call. Alfred smiled as he thought of that other day which seemed so long ago, but wisely he did not remind his sister of her rudeness and snobbiness on that other occasion. Brightly he was saying, Oh, Alfred, I'm going to write to Dad tomorrow and tell him what a wonderful time I'm having, and how glad I am that he wanted us to spend the winter in town where he was born. Indeed, some influence, were not clearly understood by Alfred, was working miraculous changes in his sister. End of chapter 21 Chapter 22 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton. Chapter 22. A New Resolve. On Monday morning, Geraldine awoke with a new resolve. Never again would she be put in the embarrassing position of not being able to do anything really useful when the SSC got up a dinner, and not for worlds would she have Jack Lee know that she had considered cooking menial, an accomplishment far beneath her. His ideas and ideals were very different from those she had acquired at the fashionable seminary in Dorchester. When the girl went down to breakfast, she found that the Colonel and Alfred had gone early to town. Mrs. Gray was waiting for her, sitting in the sunny bow window, reading the morning paper. "'Oh, there you are, dearie,' she rose briskly and added. "'I'll have to go down to the kitchen to get the things I've been keeping warm for us.' Geraldine looked surprised. "'But why doesn't Sing send them up in the lift?' she asked." Mrs. Gray, at once sober, shook her head as she said, "'Poor Sing, it seems that he went to Dorchester to the Chinese quarters yesterday to see a sick friend, and while there the place was quarantined for smallpox, and he will have to remain away for at least two weeks.' "'Oh, Mrs. Gray, whatever shall we do? How can you do all the housekeeping and the cooking as well?' The old lady smiled at the girl lovingly. "'Do you know, Geraldine,' she began, "'I sort of thought that perhaps you would like to help me.' Now that you can make a bed the way Mary Lee taught you, if you would make the Colonel's and Alfred's, of course I can, and will, was the almost unexpected rejoinder. And better than that, the girl flashed a bright smile at the old lady, I'm glad Sing is going to be away for two weeks, because that will give us a chance to use the kitchen all we want to, won't it, Mrs. Gray? Use the kitchen, Geraldine? The old lady could hardly believe that she had heard all right. I thought I once heard you say that you hoped you would never have to step inside of a kitchen. The girl flushed, but she answered frankly, "'You are right, I did. But yesterday, when I saw those girls, all of them from nice families, cooking such a very good meal, I felt sorry. Oh, more than that, I was actually ashamed when Jack Lee asked me which of the dishes I had prepared, and if someone hadn't changed the subject, I would have felt terribly humiliated to have had to confess that I couldn't cook at all.' A ray of light was penetrating the darkness for Mrs. Gray. Briskly, she replied, I shall enjoy teaching you to cook, dearie, as I would a granddaughter of my own. Then Geraldine further surprised the old lady by leading her up to the seat and declaring that she would go down to the kitchen and bring up the breakfast. 
while they were eating it cosily in the sun-flooded room with the snow sparkling on the window-sill and icicles geraldine confided that she had impulsively invited all of the girls and boys who had been at mary's to a dinner-party which she had said she would cook how mrs gray laughed good good she said i shall enjoy that when is it to be i thought i would like to have it on doris drexel's birthday that will be in about two weeks that very afternoon the lessons began no one was in the secret except for the colonel and every day he drove to the seminary to get geraldine that she might reach home sooner for the lesson and dinner preparing the girls wondered especially when they were so eager to search for more clues in their myra mystery as peg called it what are you up to doris asked her at last why do you rush home every day after school i believe she has a mystery of her own betty bird teased geraldine flashed a merry glance in the speaker's direction right oh i have she confessed however i'm going to reveal it all to you at our next meeting of the s s c where is it to be at bertha's again that is the most central place mary told her we're all going to try and unearth something which will help us solve the myra mystery when the girls met on the following saturday afternoon it was quite evident that at least two of them could hardly wait for the formalities to be over before they could reveal something of interest the president being aware of this said as soon as sleuth bertha had read the minutes of the last meeting geraldine and doris look as though they would burst if they didn't tell us something have you both unearthed clues in the myra mystery but jerry shook her head nary a clue she confessed my news item is far less interesting than that doris on the edge of her chair was waiting to speak and when the president nodded in her direction she exclaimed girls danny o'neill's mother's first name began with m and wouldn't it be wonderful if she would have been that myra cornwall then danny could own her share of the ranch of course he wouldn't have to go out there to live but he could have the money it brings in for his art education the girls gazing at the flushed eager face wondered why doris was so greatly interested in the boy but bertha the practical asked why should you think the initial m would mean myra there are ever so many christian names beginning with that letter oh of course i'm just grasping at a straw i only learned about it this morning mother had me go over a box of old receipts and throw out many of them and i found one from danny's mother merely signed m o'neill that would be splendid mary commented i do wish we could find that myra especially if she is someone in need and then we would be spreading sunshine as well as having a mystery club i'm going to see danny tonight doris told them mother was so interested in some carving that he did she wants to meet him and so she had me invite him to supper you call us up as soon as you find out we'll be wild to know mary said then turned toward geraldine now may we hear your news item the city girl beamed on them i invited you all to a dinner party you remember and told you that later i would let you know the date oh goody betty bird clapped her hands i adore parties when is it to be geraldine told them and doris said my birthday i certainly appreciate that what jerry did not tell them was that she was to cook every bit of it and the menu was all planned except the dessert and she wanted that very afternoon to find out what jack lee liked best to achieve this she asked what do most boys like for dessert she looked at bertha and then at rose but just as she had hoped mary was the first to reply jack likes whipped cream cake with banana filling best this information was rapidly followed with other suggestions which geraldine scarcely heard the only dessert that she cared to remember was the one that jack liked and she could hardly wait for the colonel to call for her that she might go home and practise making one for the family sunday dinner 
That night, every member of the SSC received a phone call, and the voice of Sleuth Doris regretfully told them that Danny's mother's name was Martha O'Neill, and so the mystery was no nearer a solution than it had been. End of chapter 22 Chapter 23 of The Seventh Sleuth's Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuth's Club by Carol Norton Chapter 23 A Proud Cook On the day of the party, Geraldine was up earlier and at once donned a pretty blue bungalow apron. Then followed merry hours, each one filled with the preparations for the dinner. Alfred offered to help stone dates and crack walnuts, while Danny O'Neill was sent on frequent trips to the village. At five o'clock, with the help of both boys, the dining-room was prettily decorated. Then Geraldine went to put on the dress she had made. Later, with Alfred, she stood near the fireplace, waiting the coming of the guests. They arrived in a procession of sleighs with ringing of bells and tooting of horns. When Geraldine threw open the door, planning to say, "'Happy birthday, Doris!' she was met by a laughing throng of young people, but Doris was not among them. "'Where is our guest of honour? the amazed hostess exclaimed as the others trooped into the brightly illuminated hall. It was Mary who replied, "'Doris told me to tell you that she had company arrive unexpectedly. "'It was so late that there wasn't time to telephone and ask permission to bring her friend. "'She knew you would say yes, but she feared it would inconvenience you.' "'The gladness left Geraldine's face. "'But Mary,' she protested, "'we can't have Doris's birthday party without Doris here. "'It would be like giving the play Hamlet and leaving Hamlet out.' "'Then turning to Alfred, she said, "'Brother, please drive down and bring back both Doris and her guest.' Just then Danny O'Neill appeared, and, after greeting the newcomers, he said, "'Miss Geraldine, there's a beggar at the back door, and she insists she must see you at once.' A month previous Geraldine would have tossed her head and replied haughtily that a beggar woman most certainly could have nothing to say to her that she would care to hear. Perhaps even then she might have replied impatiently had she not chanced to see Jack Lee intently watching her. Turning to Mary, she asked her to escort the girls upstairs to remove their wraps. Alfred was leading the boys to his den. Then she hurried into the kitchen, wondering why a beggar should ask to see her. In the dimly lit back entry stood a frail woman, shabbily dressed, who was leaning on a cane. A black bonnet shaded her face, and Geraldine believed that she had never before seen this beggar person. The stranger began to speak in a weak, wavering voice. "'Miss Geraldine,' she said, I am a poor widow with one child and seven husbands. Oh, no, I mean one husband and seven children. My husband is sick. My young ones are starving. I heard has how you are going to have a fine party tonight, and I came to beg you to save a few crumbs for my poor babies. Geraldine was puzzled. The woman before her was shabby enough to be a beggar, but her plea did not ring true. "'If you will come into the kitchen,' the girl replied, "'I will pack a basket for you to take to your seven husbands and one child.' There was a shout of laughter from the door leading into the dining-room, and Geraldine, turning, beheld the boys and girls peering over each other's shoulders, watching the fun. "'I just knew it was a prank,' Geraldine laughingly exclaimed. Then to the beggar-woman she said, "'You're Doris, of course.' "'No, she isn't,' a merry voice called from the doorway, and there, among the others, stood the missing Doris.' The supposed beggar suddenly removed her bonnet, and the laughing face of Geraldine's dearest friend from the city was revealed. 
With a cry of joy, the delighted hostess embraced the beggar, rags and all. "'Adeline Drexel!' she exclaimed. "'This is the most wonderful surprise. Why didn't you write me that you were coming? Or, Doris, why didn't you tell me?' Then, turning to the smiling housekeeper, the girl exclaimed, "'Mrs. Gray, this is my dear little playmate. We have lived next door to each other ever since our dull days. You've heard me speak of Adeline Drexel, just deans of times.' Then, slipping her arm about the laughing beggar girl, she led the way up to her room. Ten minutes later they reappeared. Adeline had shed her shabby costume and looked like a rose fairy in the pretty pink gown. When the young people were seated around the blazing log fire in the library, the stately Colonel Wainwright appeared and was gladly greeted by all. Then Mrs. Gray called, "'Come, children, supper is ready.' Geraldine laughed. "'I just can't impress Mrs. Gray with my age and dignity. She always calls me little girl. I think she is the dearest old lady, Adeline Draxlick declared. She is just my ideal of a grandmother. I am so glad that she is here with you. Geraldine's own ideas about how one should feel toward an upper servant had undergone such a complete change that now she replied with enthusiasm. I do love Mrs. Gray. She is very superior to her position. She is the Colonel's housekeeper, you know. In the brightly lighted dining-room, the young people were standing while the little old lady designated their places. Geraldine noticed that she was giving up her own seat at one end of the table for the unexpected guest. "'Oh, Mrs. Gray,' she intervened, "'you have forgotten our plan. You are to sit there. I won't need a chair just at first, for I am going to serve.' "'And I am going to help,' Jack Lee declared. Then, taking the self-appointed waitress by the hand, he led her kitchenward. "'That was great of you, Geraldine,' he said, when they were alone. "'Lots of girls would have let the old lady wait on them. "'Now give me a towel to throw over my arm and a white apron "'so that I will look like a regular garçon.' "'This added to the fun, and for the first time in her sixteen years, "'Geraldine found herself actually serving others "'in what she would have scornfully called two months before "'a manner degrading and menial. "'Now and then Bob Angel sprang up, to lend a hand, and when Jack and Bob tried to be comedians, there was always much laughter and playful bantering. The whipped cream cake was praised until the cheeks of the maker thereof glowed with pleasure. Then, when the others had been served, they moved closer and made room for Geraldine and Jack. When they were leaving the table, Doris said softly to the Irish lad, "'Danny, I want to see you alone as soon as possible.' When the young people were in the library, playing old-fashioned games with dear Mrs. Gray and the Colonel joining in now and then, Doris and Danny slipped away unobserved. They sat on the window seat in the hall, and the girl turned such glowing eyes toward the boy that a lot of dread was lifted from his heart. "'Good angel,' he said. "'After all, it isn't anything about the highway robbery that I have to tell you. I can see that by your face. I was so afraid that—' The girl placed a finger on his lips— "'Danny O'Neill,' she said seriously, "'I want you to promise me that you will never again refer to that mistake in your life. "'I myself would completely forget it if you do not speak of it so often. "'I want you to forget it, too. "'We must not let the mistakes of our past hold us down. "'It is what we are and what we are going to be that count, not what we have been. "'Now remember, sir,' Doris shook a finger at him, "'your good angel will be good to you no longer if you ever mention that subject again.' The lad looked at the pretty girl at his side earnestly and said, "'Doris, I can't understand why you are so kind to me, a no-account Irish boy who isn't anybody and will never be anybody.' Doris laughed. "'Danny, would you mind if we changed the subject? 
I wish to do the talking, so you be as quiet as a little brown mouse while I tell you my glorious plan. But first of all, I want to thank you for the beautiful book-rack that you carved for me. It's hanging on the wall of my room this very minute, and my prettiest books are in it. Then, laying her hand on the boy's arm, she added, Danny, please don't call yourself good for nothing. It is not right for us to speak in that way of the gifts that God has given us. Mother thinks that the carving of the book-rack shows you of unusual talent, and the wild rose design is very pretty. The boy's face glowed with pleasure. Oh, Doris, he said eagerly, do you really think that maybe, some time, I could make good with my designing? You don't know what it would mean to me if I could. It would mean a whole lot to me too, Danny, the girl said, rising. Now we must go back to join the others, but there, I have forgotten the very thing I wanted to ask you, which is this. Are you willing that I send the book-rack to a friend of mother's who is an artist? He would be able to tell just which course of training you ought to have. Good angel, would you do it for me? The boy asked eagerly. Then I wouldn't have to be just groping in the dark. I'd know better how to plan my life. These two joined the others who had not missed them. Mary was talking to Geraldine and Doris joined them. Why didn't Myra Comley come to your dinner party? The president of the SSC was asking their hostess. You invited her that night at our house. Geraldine nodded. And more than that, I dropped her a card telling her the date and that I would send my brother after her. But she phoned early this morning that her mother had caught a severe cold that might develop into pneumonia, and she could not possibly leave her. Poor girl, Doris said. I'm glad tomorrow will be Saturday again. I shall drive around and see if there's anything I can do for them. Mother would want me to. She likes Myra ever so much. She wanted to meet her when she returned the laundry last Thursday and said that she thought her an unusually fine girl. Myra told Mother that she had hoped to be able to go through Teacher's College, that she might care for her mother, who is not strong. But now I suppose she will have to give up, just as she is about to graduate from high. Oh, I hope not, Mary said. Then the three boys approached to claim them as partners for a dance. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 24 Kindness Rewarded Mary, Geraldine and Doris went alone the next day to the home of Myra Comley. Danny O'Neill drove them there, then waited in the cutter until they came out. Myra opened the door slightly, saying that perhaps they would better not come in, but Geraldine declared that she never caught anything, and as Mary and Doris had no fears, they entered the neat little living room and sat down, while Doris gave the message from her mother. Tears sprang to the girl's eyes. "'How very kind of your mother to offer to send us her own private nurse,' she said with sincere appreciation. "'Dr. Carson was with us all night, and he says that this crisis is now over, and that mother will not have pneumonia.' but that she is worn out and will need absolute rest for a long time. The doctor said that she ought to go where winters are milder. Myra was wiping her eyes, trying, as the girls could see, to keep from breaking down. Doris went to her and put an arm across her shoulders. With tender sympathy, she said, Myra, you're just worn out with these three days and nights of watching and anxiety. I wish you would let me telephone mother to send our dear old nurse. Then I would like to take you home with me for a rest. But the girl was shaking her head. Oh, no, no, I, I, I couldn't leave mother. She still has spells of wandering in her mind. She thinks she's a girl again on the father's ranch in Arizona. 
She got no farther, for the three girls exclaimed in an excited chorus, "'Was your mother Myra Cornwall? Has she a brother Caleb in Arizona?' The girl dropped her handkerchief and stared in unbelieving amazement. "'How in the world did you know my mother's maiden name?' she gasped. "'Mother has told no one. Not that she was ashamed of it, but—' "'But, you see, she married against her parents' wishes, "'and she knew they would never want to see her or hear from her again. "'Her brother Caleb disliked my father more than even her parents did, "'and so she never wrote, not even after my father died and we were so poor.' "'Then, with her mouth trembling and eyes tear-brimmed, the girl asked, "'Won't you tell me what you know about it?' "'And so Doris told about the clipping they had found in the Dorchester paper "'and how they had called on all the Myras they could find.' "'But your mother was born in New York State,' Mary recalled. "'That's why we decided that she could not be the one.' Myra nodded. "'Yes, that is where mother was born. "'But her parents went west when she was five, "'and she had lived on a ranch in that beautiful desert country "'until she was sent east to school.' "'Suddenly she sprang up, a glad light in her face. "'Mother is awake. I hear her calling me. "'I must go and tell her the wonderful news.' "'Then, impulsively, she held out her hand to Doris as she said—' "'How can we thank you? Now, as soon as mother is well, I can take her to the home she is so yearned to see, knowing that her brother Caleb wants her, really wants her.' When the girls were again in the sleigh, they told Danny to race for town. They were to attend the weekly meeting at Peg's house, and they had wonderful news to tell. In a remarkably short time they reached there and found the others assembled. "'Girls!' Doris burst out before she had removed her outdoor wraps. The mystery is solved. Myra Comley, I mean the mother, is the one we wanted. And now that she may go back to her Arizona home and won't have to take in washing any more, she will get well, I am sure, just ever so soon. Myra is going to send a telegram at once to her uncle, and I know that he will send money for them for the journey. Now all of the mysteries are solved except where the boys have their club room. Peg began when Bertha laughingly told them that wasn't even a mystery any longer. How come? Peg asked. Well, last night mother wanted a yeast cake from the store just before bedtime that she might put some dough to rise. Dad had gone to the lodge and Bob had left early with the boys, so I took a lantern and went to the store. I had a key to the side door and I went in. At first I was very much startled to see a light coming through the cracks in the floor of a storeroom over the back part. One has to go up a ladder on the side wall, then crawl through a trap-door to get to it. I was just wondering why thieves would want to go up there where Dad keeps hardware supplies and things like that, when I heard a laugh and I knew it was Bob. Then I realised that I had stumbled upon the secret meeting place of the CDC. "'Well, that's a much more sensible place than the old Wesley room would be,' Mary commented. Having removed their wraps, they all sat about the cosy fire, and Peg passed around the garments they were making for the orphans. There's one thing sure, the solving of our mystery sped sunshine all right, and so we lived up to our first motto without really meaning to, Mary commented. Peg inquired, did you hear anything that the boys were talking about? I tried not to, Bertha said. I went at once to the front of the store and got my yeast cake, but, just as I was stealing back out again so that they wouldn't hear me, I heard Bob say, four o'clock Saturday, that's tomorrow, surprise the girls. The seven sleuths looked at each other in puzzled amazement. Hmm, another mystery, I should say, Peg commented. Mary glanced at her wristwatch. Well, if the boys are planning a surprise for us, since it is 3.30 now, we won't be kept in long in suspense. Nor were they, for in half an hour, punctually at four, the boys arrived and stated that they had received permission from the parents of the girls to take them somewhere on a sleigh ride. 
Oh, what fun! Mary sprang up, as did the others. Little blue garments were folded, and outdoor wraps were donned upstairs in Peg's room. I know, I know, Peg sang out. You remember that time at the Drexel Lodge when we wanted to stay and ride home by moonlight? We couldn't, and the boys said they would take us for a moonlight ride at some other time. Mary nodded. I believe you're right. Where do you suppose we are going? It was half an hour later, and the village had been left far behind before the answer was revealed to them. Up the East Lake Road, Bertha exclaimed. It was half-past five and dark when they drew up in front of the inn. Mr. Wiggin, the genial host, popped out to welcome them. "'Come right in, come right in,' he called good-naturedly. "'Everything is piping hot and ready to serve.' The girls were delighted. "'Oh, boys, you're giving us a surprise supper, aren't you? That's jolly fun!' "'Aren't we glad we know them?' There were a few of the many expressions of appreciation from the girls as they were being helped from the long sleigh. That something was piping hot and ready to be served proved to be the wonderful combination clam chowder for which the lakeside inn was famous. The dining-room was warm and cheerful, with red-shaded lamps around the walls, and the jolliest hour was passed while boys joked and told stories, which they had evidently learnt for the occasion. When the dessert, Mrs. Wiggin's equally famous plum pudding, had been removed, Bob tapped on the table for attention. "'Young ladies,' he said, we boys of the CDC, having heard how cleverly you solved a mystery— What? How did you hear? Two of the girls exclaimed in surprise. Well, that is an important point to clear up, Bob acknowledged. Jack here was in the telegraph station about three this afternoon, and Myra Comley was there sending a message to some uncle of hers in Arizona. She was so excited she spilled the beans and told Jack all about your mystery club and how you found her mother's brother. He paused to look about at the astonished group. Then, seeming to be satisfied, he continued. "'We boys are working on a mystery, and since you girls are so clever—' "'No bouquets, please,' he pretended to dodge. "'We thought we would invite you to, uh, be associate members of our club. We hope that you will consider it an honour. Mary sprang up and, lifting her glass of water, said, "'Here's to the combined Conan Doyle and Seventh Sleuth's Club. Long may they wave!' "'Ditto!' Bob lifted his glass, as did the others, and then they all rose, for Jack had dropped a nickel in the automatic organ and was playing dance music which could not be resisted. End of chapter 24 Chapter 25 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 25 A Much-Loved Girl Geraldine, dearie, why don't you get up? Aren't you feeling well this morning? It was the day after the sleigh-ride party. Mrs. Gray had purposely permitted the girl to sleep late, but now it was nearing the hour of noon. Geraldine tossed restlessly, and her face was feverish. Oh, Mrs. Gray, she said, I have such a headache. I tried to get up, but I couldn't. Then I tried to call, but you did not hear. The little old lady was truly worried. She placed her cool hand on the hot forehead, and then she hurried from the room, promising to be back in a few moments. She went at once to the colonel's study, hoping that he had returned from his morning constitutional, but he was not there. Going to the telephone, Mrs. Gray was soon talking to Dr. Carson. "'I'm so afraid our little girl has been exposed to some contagious disease,' she said. "'Won't you please come over at once?' The kindly doctor was at the house fifteen minutes later, and with him was the colonel, whom he had met on the highway. 
The doctor examined the girl, who was too listless to heed what was going on. Geraldine is very ill, he said seriously. Come to think of it, Myra Comely told me that three of the girls, Geraldine among them, had brought her the wonderful news that she had to tell me about her mother's brother. Mrs. Comely had been ill for nearly a week with a form of influenza which is often fatal. Then, noting the startled expressions on the faces of his listeners, the doctor added, Do not be alarmed, however, for we have taken this case in time. I am sure of that. But, as days passed, the doctor and Mrs. Gray were not so sure, for, in spite of their constant and loving care, Geraldine grew weaker. The little old lady would permit no one else to nurse the girl, but day and night she was near the bedside, ministering with an unceasing tenderness and devotion. The colonel procured two capable young women to assist in the household. They were Matilda and Susa Rankin, who for years had worked at the Morrisons in Dorchester. Mary Lee and Doris Drexel, having been equally exposed, were kept home from school for a week, but they had evidently been able to resist the contagion, and were not ill. Jack Lee called often to inquire about Geraldine, and his heart was heavy when the news was so discouraging. Then, at last, a day came when, with hope almost gone, the colonel, with an aching heart, cabled to Geraldine's father. He was still in England, and could not reach Sunnyside for two weeks, but Geraldine often called faintly for her dad, and the colonel knew he must send for him. "'I expect the crisis to-night,' the doctor said late one afternoon. Jack Lee, hearing of this, sat up with Danny O'Neill in his room over the garage. Alfred had promised to place a lighted candle in a rear window as soon as the doctor believed Geraldine to be out of danger. The long dark hours passed, and it was nearing dawn. Danny had fallen asleep, but Jack, alone, in the dark, sat watching for the candle, which did not appear. At sunrise, as his friend had not awakened, Jack, unable to stand the suspense longer, went out in the garden, hoping that he might see someone from whom he might make inquiries. As he passed beneath the window, which was softly opened, and Alfred leaned out, his face was drawn and white. "'Jack,' he called, "'please telephone Mary and the other girls and tell them Geraldine seems to be asleep. We thought for hours that she would never awaken, but now the doctor reports that her breathing is more normal. He is confident that the worst is over.' The listener's face brightened. "'Good!' he ejaculated. "'Is there anything you want from town? I am going to take Danny home with me to breakfast, and he can bring back anything you may need.' Alfred disappeared to consult the housekeeper as to what supplies might be required, and Jack— Leaping up the garage steps two at a time, found Danny awake and wondering what had become of his friend. He, too, was glad indeed to hear the news, and a few moments later, when Alfred had dropped a list out to them, they drove away with lighter hearts than they had in many a day. Great was the rejoicing in the town of Sunnyside as the news was telephoned from one home to another, and, a week later, when Geraldine was strong enough to sit up for a few hours in her sunny bow window, the six girls, wrapped in furs, stood beneath it, waving to her and smiling and nodding to assure her of their friendship. When they were gone, there were tears in the eyes of the invalid as she turned towards the ever-watchful old lady who sat sewing nearby. "'Mrs. Gray,' she said, "'am I different, or is everyone else different? When I first came, I did not want to know these country girls.' "'but now I love them all dearly.' "'Then, before the little old lady could reply, "'Geraldine asked, "'Is my dad coming to-day?' "'The housekeeper looked troubled. "'The colonel could not account for the fact "'that Mr. Morrison had not been heard from "'since he first cabled that he would return "'as soon as possible. 
"'Surely he will be here by tomorrow at the latest,' was the evasive answer. The girl's rapt gaze then rested on the soft, silvery hair of the bent head. "'Mrs. Gray, why have you been so good to me? An own relation couldn't have been kinder. You have tired yourself out, I know, caring for me day and night. I don't deserve it.' There was a twinkle in the eyes that looked at the girl. "'I've been playing a game, Geraldine,' she said. "'I've been pretending that you were my make-believe granddaughter.' Then, wistfully, she added, "'You don't know how all these last ten long years I have yearned for someone who really belonged to me, someone to care for.' Before Geraldine could reply, the doorbell pealed. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 of The Seven Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seven Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 26 A Happy Reunion The tall, fine-looking man who stood on the front porch lifted his hat as Mrs. Gray opened the door. "'I'm Mr. Morrison,' he said, and then he hastened to inquire, "'How is my little girl today?' The housekeeper's face brightened. "'Oh, I'm so glad you have come,' she said. "'Geraldine was asking for you but a moment ago. "'She is much better, but I am not sure she is strong enough to see you "'unless I first tell her that you are here. "'Sudden joy may be as great a shock as sudden sorrow.' But as they ascended the stairs and went quietly down the corridor, they heard the girl calling, "'Daddy! Oh, I know it's you, Daddy! I've been expecting you all day long!' When the tender greeting was over, with shining eyes, the girl looked at him as she said, "'I'm going to get well right away, I know. I've been so lonesome for you, Dad.' Turning towards the little old lady, she added lovingly, "'Mrs. Gray is my make-believe grandmother, and you can't guess how good she has been to me.' Then, suddenly thinking of something, she smilingly declared, "'Why, that makes Mrs. Gray your make-believe mother, doesn't it, Dad?' The man, because of his great anxiety about his daughter, had scarcely noticed the old lady. He now turned and looked at her, intending to thank her for her kindness to his little girl. To his surprise, tears were rolling unheeded down the wrinkled cheeks, although, in the sweet face, there was an expression of radiant joy. Then Mrs. Gray held out her arms to the amazed man and said in a voice that trembled with emotion, "'Alfred, my boy, don't you know me?' A few moments later, when the colonel entered the room, he smiled around the happy group. "'Well, Mrs. Gray,' he said, after he had exchanged greetings with the newcomer, "'we don't have to keep our secret any longer, do we?' "'Oh, Colonel Wainwright!' Geraldine exclaimed. "'Have you known all the time that Mrs. Gray was my real grandmother?' "'Yes, lassie, but she did not want me to tell you. She wished first of all to win your love.' A door banged below when Alfred leapt up the stairs two at a time. "'Susan, having told him that his father had arrived. "'He, too, was amazed to learn that Mrs. Gray was their grandmother. "'I'm bully glad,' the lad exclaimed as he kissed the beaming old lady. "'Then he added, "'Of course I knew that Dad ran away from home when he was sixteen "'and that he had never seen his parents since. "'But you thought they were dead, didn't you, Dad?' "'His father nodded. "'I've been alone for ten years,' Mrs. Gray told them, "'and during that time I've been hunting for my boy.' "'All's well that ends well,' Alfred said, and his father added, "'Just as soon as Geraldine is able to travel, we must return to our home in Dorchester.' "'Oh, Dad,' the girl protested, "'I do wish we might stay in the country forever.' The next day, at Mrs. Gray's suggestion, her son took her for a drive in the light buggy. 
Although the colonel had two automobiles, the little old lady preferred the old-fashioned way of travelling. They drove along Willowbell and Road, where the last bits of snow were rapidly disappearing, and where the reddish-green buds were to be seen on the drooping leaves that gave the country road its name. Mrs. Gray lifted a beaming face and smiled up at her long-lost son from under her quaint, Quaker-like bonnet. "'You haven't asked me, Alfred. Why is my name Gray?' No, he acknowledged. I suppose that you would tell me in time if you had married again. She shook her head. No, I never did. Because I always dressed in grey, friends began to call me that, and when I came here once more searching for some trace of you, I thought I would use that name, and am glad I did, for, by doing so, I won the love of my granddaughter. She might otherwise have cared merely from a sense of duty. Then, as they turned in between two stone gate posts, the man said, how strange it seems to be coming back to our old home. I thought it had been sold for taxes long ago. It was nearly sold, Mrs. Gray replied, but I heard of it in time to pay back the taxes and keep it. I first thought, when I couldn't find you, that I did not care to own it, for every corner and tree reminded me of you when you were a boy. But now I am so glad that I have kept our old home. It is rather dilapidated, she added brightly, but in a week or so we can have it all in readiness before we tell the children a word about it. Then, when Geraldine is strong enough to be moved, we will bring her over here. How pleased she will be, Mr. Morrison declared. I will go to Dorchester tomorrow and see about selling our other place and have the furniture sent down here. I thought we'd let Alfred have the room that was yours when you were a boy, Mrs. Gray continued, and that sunny bay window room which overlooks the garden is the one I have planned for Geraldine. Mother, the smiling man protested, you know how completely I have been spoiling our girl. You aren't going to do the same, are you? The little old lady shook her head. Geraldine is a changed lassie. She won't spoil now. And it's all due to your loving influence, I am sure, Mr. Morrison declared. There were twinkles in the eyes that looked up at him. I can't take all of the credit, Mrs. Gray replied. I think someone else had even more to do with the change in Geraldine than I have. She was thinking of Jack Lee, but at that time she did not care to tell her son about him. The old house was one of those charming places, pillared in front with wide halls and large, many-windowed rooms that could easily be transformed into the just the kind of home that Geraldine liked best. Busy days followed for Mrs. Gray and her son. Then, three weeks later, Dr. Carson announced that Geraldine was strong enough to be moved. So well had the secret been kept that the lassie supposed that they were going to Dorchester. End of chapter 26 Chapter 27 of The Seventh Sleuths Club This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Seventh Sleuths Club by Carol Norton Chapter 27 Home, Sweet Home Geraldine, supposing that they were about to leave for the city, could not understand why her friends had not called to say goodbye. "'Perhaps they will be waiting at the station,' she said to Alfred, when they were all in the big car, with Danny O'Neill at the wheel. "'Like as not,' the unsuspecting lad replied. The colonel glanced at his watch. "'Morrison,' he said, "'it's a whole hour before the train time. Would you mind if we went farther out onto the Willowbed Road? I have a little business there that I would like to attend to.' "'It's all right with me,' the other man replied, and Alfred, happening to look at his father, was sure that he had turned away to hide a smile.' 
Ten minutes later the car turned into the circling drive and stopped in front of the pillared porch of an old colonial home. "'What a pleasant place this is,' Geraldine said. "'Who lives here, Colonel Wainwright?' "'Some good friends of mine,' that gentleman replied as he prepared to leave the car. Then, as though it were a sudden afterthought, he added, "'I wish you would all come in for one moment. We'll have plenty of time to get to the train.' It seemed odd to the girl that they should call upon strangers just before leaving town, but she was too fond of the colonel not to willingly do whatever he suggested, and so, leaning upon his proffered arm, she slowly climbed the wide steps. To Geraldine's surprise, the door was opened by Susan, and when they entered the wide hall, she saw Matilda, who was beaming upon them. What could it mean? Glancing into the attractive room on the either side, the girl was amazed to see the furniture which had been in their city home. Then, suddenly she understood, and, turning a radiant face towards her father, she exclaimed, "'Oh, Dad, we aren't going to Dorchester, are we? I'm so glad. But do tell me, how did you happen to find this wonderful place? I just adore old-fashioned colonial houses.' "'It's where I was born,' her father replied. "'Your grandmother and I have been planning it all to surprise you and Alfred.' "'Well, it sure is a surprise to me,' the lad declared, "'and I'm bully glad that we're going to stay in the country.' "'Do the girls know about it?' Geraldine asked, "'but before anyone could reply there sounded in the driveway a ringing of a cowbell, "'the tooting of horns and the gay laughter of young people.' Doris was the first to enter the hall of the Morrison home when the door opened, but a troop of laughing boys and girls followed closely. "'Oh, Geraldine!' Doris exclaimed. "'Isn't this a grand and glorious surprise? We didn't know a thing about it until this morning. We had supposed that you were going to Dorchester, and we planned being at the station to say good-bye when someone phoned Jack for us to come here instead.' "'We are all so glad that you were to stay in Sunnyside,' Mary declared. Tears gathered in the lovely eyes of the girl, who was still not strong, and Jack, noticing this, held out his arm. "'Princess Geraldine,' he said, "'permit me to lead you into your throne, where you may receive the homage of your rejoicing subjects.' A moment later, when the happy girl was seated near the fireplace with Jack standing at her side, Doris, looking about the room, exclaimed, "'Where is Danny O'Neill? Why isn't he here with us?' "'I think he went to the garage,' Alfred said. "'I'll bring him in.' The two lads soon entered the house together, and Alfred's arm was thrown over the other boy's shoulder to ensure him that he considered him a friend and an equal. Doris walked up to them, holding a long envelope before the Irish boy. She exclaimed, "'Mr. Danny O'Neill, if you can guess what this envelope contains, you may have it.' "'Why, Doris, how should I know?' the mystified lad replied. "'I've never had a letter written to me by anyone.' "'Well, you certainly have one now,' Doris declared, "'but I'm going to read it out to the entire company, so please lend me your ears.' Then, opening the important-looking envelope, she read, "'Dorchester Art Institute, March the 1st. "'Mr. Danny O'Neill, "'we are glad to inform you that the carving which you submitted in our recent contest "'has been awarded first place, and, as a result, you will receive a scholarship in our institution "'for one year from this date, all of your expenses to be paid.' We advise you to come at once, as new classes will be formed on Monday, March the 5th. The expression on the face of the Irish lad was first puzzled, and then radiant. Doris, he said, you entered that carving in the contest, and I didn't know a thing about it. Oh, Danny, Mary exclaimed, she held out her hand. I congratulate you for all of us. 
A little later, Doris found the lad standing alone by a window, gazing out at the trees that were showing a haze of silvery green. He looked up with a welcoming smile. Doris, he said, I'm thinking how pleased my mother would be. Then he added, I'm going to try hard to succeed. Good angel, I want you to be proud of me. When the others were gone, Jack remained to spend the evening with Alfred, so he said, but, during the long twilight, he and Geraldine sat before the fireplace, and the girl listened to the lad's dreams of his future on a cattle ranch, and her heart was made happy when Jack said earnestly, "'You'd love it, Geraldine. From now on I am going to hope that you will be there with me.'" End of chapter 27 End of the Seventh Sleuths Club